just a minute guys, I'm trying to get this video shared in a couple different groups, so just about done and I'll be right back. Let's go ahead and get started. So, all right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are doing a debate between myself and Matthew Broderick. Uh, so, basically, I want to kind of give you a rundown on what it's going to look like when we get back from our introduction video. Uh, but I do want to tell you guys, he is going to represent the Catholic perspective. I'll represent a free grace perspective as it's as it's related to the Eucharist, and uh, it's it's really kind of the um, the idea is not to be uh, some a specific thesis. So a lot of the time you'll see a specific thesis like uh, is the sacrament of the Eucharist necessary for salvation? So um, or is it not necessary for salvation? Somebody would take the affirmative, somebody would take the negative, but in this case we are leaving it completely open ended. So the reason we did that was so that we can represent our position and and talk about the other position as well without having to take an affirmative or a negative. And then we'll open up, open it up to open dialogue and spend a lot more time on cross-examination and uh, then open it up at the end for you all. If you want to call in with questions, you can do that at the end. I'll give you that number as we come back, but give me just a minute. We'll do our introduction video and cut back and be right back with you. So stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, sweet. So welcome back. Stay, thank you for staying tuned through the introduction. And I want to uh, go ahead and get uh, Matthew up on the screen and kind of give you guys a rundown for what to expect uh, as far as the debate structure goes and what's coming down the line. I do want to let you know that um, in the next few weeks, we've got on June 7th, a debate between myself and Dr. Stephen Boyce on total inability. And then on the 14th, there's going to be a, an eschatology debate between myself and Stacy Turbeville. Stacy is going to represent the uh, full preterist, the um, full preterist position, while I'm going to represent a futurist position on the end times. And uh, then I've got Kevin... Kevin Thompson coming on uh, towards the end of June. I, I want to say that is June. should be able to see that on the screen. June 28th at 2 p.m. And you can see this as well. That's June 14th between myself and Stacy. And then the Boyce debate is going to be on 
uh, June 7th. So be sure, stay tuned for those. You can go to the YouTube page and subscribe. You can get notifications for when we go live on that so you don't miss that as well. And as always, when we um, are doing these live streams, please help us to get the word out. That way as many people can join us live uh, for the, the debate and then at the end get your questions in as well. So anyways, let's get Matthew on the screen and we'll get introduction so you guys can become familiar with him and uh, we'll go from there. So Matthew, hey, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity, Josh. Thank you so very much as well. Um, appreciate it. Absolutely. So I was, uh, um, I was kind of um, curious because you had reached out to me in an email and said, "Hey, would you be an interested interested in doing a debate?" And we came up with the topic for the Eucharist. Um, but I've seen that you've been involved in debates in the past before. Is that is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, it, is this a subject that you've debated before? Up soon. It's, uh, the other topics that we discussed were um, scripture alone. Yes. That was is is that the only uh, is that the only authority for the Christian? Um, uh, the the role of Mary in the Church, um, purgatory, and uh, I, I'm I'm not sure there was like one more I believe so. Okay. Um, but I think before so yeah so thank you for the opportunity it's nice to have absolutely yeah and so if, if somebody just types your name in Matthew Broderick into YouTube they should be able to find uh, any Actually, other debates if, if, if they if they put Matthew L or something because of the actor okay I'm gonna, I'm gonna come up twenty seven thousand names down because of the yeah. actor everything's all him so, <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna really be interested in uh, gotcha. Uh, I was in my high school play. That's as far as. Uh, but when you put in Matthew Broderick, his name comes up forever. So Ma Matthew L distinguishes us. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> awesome. So go check out. Go check that out, guys. And this will be another one that you can you can type in his name. This should be able to pop up later as well. So and just a heads up, we are on audio podcasting platforms as well. If you don't want to watch the videos, you can you can listen to us on audio. Uh, so with that said, I think we've got everything covered. Let's go ahead and show everybody what the debate structure is going to look like. I'm going to go first, and it's going to be 10-minute opening statements, then seven, followed up with 7-minute rebuttals, and then 20 minutes of cross-examination each, with 5 minutes of closing statements each. Then we'll open it up to you all in the audience for questions. Uh, with the number that you can call in at is going to be 816-866-0025, and I'll put that up at the end as well, uh, so you can feel free to call in and get your question in and address it to whoever you like. So. With that said, let's go ahead and get into it. I did not mean to open that up. Let me close this out, and I'll go ahead and open with my opening statement, get the screen back to me, and go from there. So, oh, actually, I need to put the timer up. So, kind of a rookie at this right now for some reason, but we'll get it. I'll put 10 minutes up there. All right, let me reset that. Move that over there. There you guys should be able to see that just fine now too. So cool. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So all right, so once again, thank you, Matthew, for being willing to participate in this debate. And thank you to those of you who watch this debate and share it so others can engage with this material as well. The idea here is for me to do two things. I want to show what each side teaches about the Eucharist related to salvation and to leave you as the audience with a choice. 
this choice is not something I leave you with uh, without a challenge, so at the end I'm going to leave you with a challenge as well. So stay tuned for that and be looking forward to it. But let me start by saying this. Good Catholics are no doubt very serious about the Lord's Supper, um, which is also known as the Eucharist and, and other uh, other uh, other terminology. It, it is the heart of Catholicism, there's no doubt about it. And for me personally, I do admire good Catholics for their devotion that they have to the standards that Catholicism holds them to. I admire Catholics' love for Jesus. I admire their desire to obey our Lord. I admire their devotion to doing what their religion tells them is necessary for salvation. I can relate to all of these things. But what I'm arguing and urging all Catholics to do is seriously examine themselves. I'm not asking you to question your authority in your church or your pastor or your catechisms or anything like that. I'm asking you to examine your heart today inwardly with what you've been taught to what the scriptures say about salvation. Now, specifically regarding the doctrine of justification, uh, the Catholic Church teaches that initial salvation is guaranteed to come to only the predestined elect who are chosen by God to receive initial grace at baptism from before the foundation of the world while the non-elect are chosen to go to hell. If you've never heard that before, well, you might want to look into that. This includes babies, it includes mentally handicapped or the incapacitated. If, if you're a Catholic, go talk to your priest about that and see what he tells you. Send me a note, because honestly, I'd like to know what, what, what you guys have to say about that. Um, but upon baptism, you've got the measure of faith which is given, whereby one is graced the ability to merit salvation. Salvation at this point is now ongoing through ongoing justification by which the Catholic is made righteous through this initially infused grace, which is now meritorious grace. Salvation um, uh, granting, this grants them the ability to keep the commandments, presenting themselves as righteous before God by God's grace, allowing them to merit for themselves, as well as others, salvation. So long as the Catholic doesn't commit any mortal sins, you'll be all right, so long as you attend Mass at least once a year, and one of these necessary works for salvation is the Eucharist, which we're going to talk about now. So let's talk about the Eucharist a little bit. And I'm hoping we'll get into more exegetical examination as we break these arguments down and look at Scripture in our cross-examination and rebuttal period. So that's what I'm going to argue against, the Eucharist. What exactly is the Eucharist? The Catholic will tell you that it is a rite of thanksgiving, as that is the Latin translation to English, Eucharistos or Eucharistias. But let's look under the curtain for a moment and see if that's all there is to it. The transubstantiated wafer and wine becomes the nourishment needed by the believer to remain in a state of grace. To be cut off from it is certain spiritual death. This is literally a change of substance from substance to substance containing the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. The Mass has all the makings of a sacrifice and thus it is properly so called by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this comes from the 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1367. It says this, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests, who when offered himself on the cross, uh, only the manner of offering is different. And then you see in the Council of Trent, session 22, chapter 4, and for as much as in this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, who once was off once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Synod teaches 
that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, for the Lord appeased by the oblation thereof forgives even heinous crimes and sins. One need not view the daily mass very long before being struck with the base familiarity of the setting used for this sacrifice. The altar is, of course, in plain view of the tabernacle and the candlesticks nearby, while the priest stands at the ready to offer this sacrifice of appeasement to God. Two angels, cast in bronze, find themselves forever prostrating themselves to the right and to the left of the altar, presumably to worship the presence of the divinity of Christ and the bread to be offered. Between these two cherubims, the priest will perform his rites by which he thanks and teaches that sins can be, to some degree, removed or at least put off. This comes from Richard F. Jones' understanding Roman Catholicism. Something very serious to consider within the Catholic Church of Salvation is the complicated manner of salvation. It is absolutely impossible to know if you are saved if you are a Catholic. I mean that. I really do. It is impossible to know if you're going to heaven or hell. The system is massively inconsistent, and if you ask any three Catholics, you'll get nine different answers depending on the day. What must I do to be saved? So what must I do to be saved, Mr. Catholic? Well, the Catholic says you must be regenerated first, which only comes through the waters of baptism. You can only be regenerated if God chose to infuse his grace into you before the foundation of the world. Be confirmed, repent from your sins, walk by faith, participate in the Mass, receive the Eucharist at least once a year, live a life of sanctification, confess all sins to your priest, and he'll take them before God for your forgiveness. Do penance, beat your body into subjection by literally beating yourself. You have to pray to uh, pray others out of purgatory, or you can also pay indulgences to the church, and that will get the high priest to pray them, pray for them depending on how many mass cards you buy, which will shorten their time and potentially your time as well. And one day, you'll more than likely end up in purgatory while you will pay for your sins that were not covered by Christ and hope others are praying you out of purgatory and paying indulgences to get you out until one day you will end up in heaven, but we have no idea when. That is way too complicated, and if I may, I will tell you the true gospel that you may know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ right here, right today. Um, well, the, uh, let me see. Salvation is so simple. Jesus Christ is God who became a man. He lived the perfect life that you have not lived and never will live. He took your place on the cross and paid for your sins, past, present, and future. He is your substitute. He died on the cross and became sin for you. He died, was buried, and rose again three days later for you personally. If you trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone, to be your Savior, as the salvation from the death you know and deserve, you will be saved and brought from death to life. How are you saved, you ask? Jesus literally imparts his own righteousness to you. It's called the doctrine of imputation. The payment is the propitiatory sacrifice. But Jesus paid for the sins of every single man, woman, boy, and girl, not just the elect, as Catholicism teaches. So what is the difference? Catholicism teaches that God gives you the grace based off your own works and hard attitude to do more good works, so you'll be made righteous by your good works, aided by God's grace to do those good works. Free grace teaches that while believing in Jesus as the one uh, free grace teaches that believing in Jesus as the one who did what you could never do, is the message of the gospel. Jesus declares you righteous, literally imputing his righteousness back onto you and sealing you with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
You do not merit your righteousness. It is given to you as a gift for belief. Sanctification is where you grow in the walk, in your walk with the Lord and become more like him every day. But the Catholic Church teaches lordship salvation, which says you have to walk perfect or you will end up paying for your own sins that the Lord, uh, um, your, your own sins that the Lord did not pay and become more like him. Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped a line there. <laughs> that you've got to pay for your own sins, sins that the Lord did not pay that were not uh, put under the blood. So I'm saying, no, Jesus paid it all. He paid all of it, all of it, past, present, and future. Jesus paid all of your sin. When you get to heaven, it won't be on your own works. Put on a measuring pendulum, seeing if your good works outweigh your bad works. It will be your works on one side and Jesus' works on the other. If you don't have the righteousness of Jesus, you have fallen short and are condemned. A grace that is earned is not any longer grace. Paul describes this in Galatians 1-3 through where he also condemns those who would say that salvation began by unmerited grace but is kept through ongoing works. And that is exactly what Roman Catholicism teaches. And I didn't ever hit the, the start timer on that, did I? So I'm, I should be somewhere around three minutes left uh, if I've got that right, but I'll, I'll just quit around um, six or seven minutes and then I'll, I'll give it back to you, Michael. So, all right, let's look at a few inconsistencies. What I've, it, This is a question. It's not an argument for against Catholicism one way or the other. But what do you do in a pandemic like we are in now where you can't be baptized, you can't receive the Eucharist, you can't participate in the Mass, you can't confess your sins, offer incense and prayers, indulgences, penance, etc. What do you do if you're a Catholic? Well, the answer is you have to live like faith alone and Jesus alone is enough to save you, which is also exactly what the Catholic Church is telling people right now. They call it uh, they call it, um, I think it's uh, unction, holy unction. I might be wrong on that. But the Roman Catholic Church followed Augustine's lead where Thomas Aquinas said, baptism opens the gates of the heavenly kingdom to the baptized. He was the first to write uh, of the baptism of desire when he said of those who, for one reason or another, could not get uh, the, to water for baptism. Such a man can obtain salvation without actually being baptized on account of his desire for baptism, whereby God sanctifies man inwardly. And you'll see that at the Council of Trent, where the waters become a little murky. Whereas Augustine saw regeneration as instantaneous and justification as a lifelong process, this council decided that regeneration only began at water baptism. They sort of combined regeneration, justification, and sanctification together in one gathering pool of God's grace. Of course, this pool was only accessible through the channels of the sacraments, water baptism, the Eucharist, etc. You'll see that in the Second Vatican Council. It required faith and baptism for salvation. However, the, the Vatican Tower has tilted in the direction of inclusivism in which all of mankind can be oriented to the life of God and all men can be save, saved by the baptism of desire. This baptism of desire is equivalent to the implicit faith possessed by uneducated people, which Thomas Aquinas taught that this implicit faith would suffice for salvation. And post-conciliar Catholics equate this implicit faith with the baptism of desire, um, thus opening the door for all men to go to heaven. Now, those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do as well as they know it through the, uh, through the dictates of their own conscience, 
those two may achieve eternal salvation. Nor shall divine providence deny the assistance necessary for salvation to those who, without any fault of theirs, have not yet arrived in any explicit knowledge of God, and who, not without grace, strive to lead a good life. The same dogma has been confirmed by Catholic theologians like G. Baum, who says, quote, One may seriously wonder whether baptism of desire is not the way of salvation for the great majority of men in this world who choose to be saved. And from the Vatican we read, Everyone does not strictly need baptism to become a child of God and an heir of heaven. Every person by reason of birth and God's universal offer of grace is already called to be a child of God and an heir of heaven. And I'll sum it up with this. If justification changed us internally and then declared us to be righteous based on how good we actually were, then one, we we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life because there's always sin that remains in our lives. And two, there would be no provision for forgiveness of past sins committed before we were changed internally. Therefore, we could never have confidence that we are righteous before God. We would lose the confidence that Paul has when he says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And if we thought of justification as based on something that we are internally, uh, that we are internally, we would never have the confidence to say, with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We would have no assurance of forgiveness with God, no confidence to draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We would not be able to speak of the free gift of righteousness or say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, and with that, Matthew, let me turn it back to you. I will uh, put the 10 minutes up on the clock for you, and whenever you're ready, you can have at it. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Joshua. Um, before I get started, I just I didn't realize we were going to go into purgatory and baptism, and, um, but I will definitely touch on those. Uh, I wasn't going to, but um, that's that's fine. If you want to do it from scripture alone uh, perspective, that, that that's fine. I know Jesus never taught scripture alone. The early church never taught scripture alone. Six of the twelve apostles, six of the twelve apostles, never even wrote anything down, and they still taught with oral authority. He who hears you hears me. So, um, but if we do go by scripture alone, uh, as regards to baptism, um, Peter says baptism now saves you. And in 1 Corinthians 11, um, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 11, Paul says, You have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified. So that's through the waters of baptism. Uh, Jesus says, uh, unless you were born of both water and spirit, um, so baptism, uh, water baptism does cleanse. As a matter of fact, Acts twenty two sixteen, it says, um, "Stand up and wash away your sins. Be baptized." So baptism cleanses. Baptism makes us righteous before the eyes of God. It's God's grace. By the way, in regards to some misconceptions about what the church teaches that um, that children, babies are going to hell, and uh, you know, the mentally handicapped are going to disabled are going to hell. It's it's not the teaching at all. Uh, the teaching was on wondering what happens to people who were not baptized. Uh, because Jesus says, unless you believe, unless you were baptized. Uh, so, But the church does teach, like I mentioned before, anyone moved by God's grace, or uh, we leave it to the mercy of God. Um, but it's, it's uh, the church teaches definitely we're saved by God's grace. We are saved by grace. But not by faith alone. Because as a matter of fact, Paul himself says, even if one has all faith, but does not love, it's useless. Colossians 3.14 says, above all these things, you must also put on love. So I can see love alone. 
But faith alone is just definitely not there by works and not by faith alone. James talks the only time faith alone is ever used together is to negate that. It's by works and not by faith alone. And Paul, when he talks about works not being justifiable, he's talking about work for the law, circumcision, the 613 laws of purification. But prior to that, in Romans 2, Paul says to those who, with well-doing, patience and well-doing, who seek glory and honor, um, God will give eternal life to those who do well. That's why John 5, Jesus says to those who have done good, these shall enter into the resurrection of life. Because Jesus shows mercy to those who have shown mercy. Jesus says, blessed are those who show mercy. You yourselves shall be shown mercy. Matthew 25, 35, Jesus judged everyone, not by their faith, but by, by their works. Did they put their faith into action? Galatians uh, 6, I believe, talks about 5, 6, says faith must be working through love. Faith must be working through love. And that's why Jesus, in John 13, says, um, this is how the world shall know that you belong to me, if you love one another. And you uh, talked about, do we have salvation, assurance of salvation? And the answer is yes. If we do God, if we cooperate with God's saving grace and do his will. Paul warns baptized Christians that if you persist in immorality, if you break God's commandments, if you break the law and do not repent, you shall not enter the kingdom. He talks about this Corinthians. He talks about this in Galatians 5, uh, Ephesians 5. And in the book of Hebrews, we're not sure exactly who wrote Hebrews, but it says, whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, if you go back to the ways you were before, you came to be with the grace of God. If you came back to the ways and you revert to your old ways, uh, that way is worse than the first. So you you shall not, uh, you shall not be saved. So um, and Jesus Himself says to those who persevere to the end. So how could you say I know right now I'm going to be saved if we don't? The end hasn't come. We have to we have to persevere to the end. We have to ask God and cooperate with His grace. Just a little bit more, just about purgatory. Uh, now we know by Scripture alone. That there's an eternal, there's two consequences to sin, eternal punishment and temporal punishment. Uh, we have a David who was forgiven his sins, but he was punished. Um, same happened with Bathsheba. His firstborn child was, was, was taken from him. So he was punished. He was forgiven, but punished. And we also have when he made a census, he went against God and he made a census. He was given three choices of punishment. So there was a temporal punishment there. And that's why um, that's why Paul talks in First Corinthians that after we die, some of us will have to go through that cleansing fire. Um, the Protestant teaches you are declared righteous, where the Catholic Church teaches you are made righteous. And how are you made righteous if you're not perfect on this earth by cooperating with God's grace um, and atoning for those eternal uh, temporal punishments? Uh, you'll be made perfect if you, uh, by God's grace, you've been saved. You'll be made perfect through those purifying fires. But temporal punishment, since we can do things to atone for those, we definitely can. Jesus said, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Give alms and all shall be clean within you. Peter says, love one another, for love covers the multitude of your own sins. Uh, Proverbs 16, 6, by loyalty and obedience is iniquity atoned for. And Daniel chapter four says, uh, um, recover from your sins and do so by practicing mercy. So temporal punishments and eternal punishments, and that's why in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10, to those who say Jesus took on all the punishments, um, it says we will be punished for the good, uh, rewarded for the good, but punished for the bad that we've done in the body. So Jesus didn't take on the temporal punishments. That's something 
we have to do here. And if we don't, we'll, we'll have to go through the purifying fire because we all have to strive for that holiness without which we'll not see the world. Um, so it's all God's grace. We're saved by the blood of Christ, provided we cooperate with his grace and ask for his mercy. Again, Paul warns baptized Christians, if you sin and persist in immorality and impurity, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And he's writing to Christians. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. So um, we, have to, we have to confess our sins, we have to repent our sins, and we have to, we have to change our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to put on that new man, as Paul talks about. Now, if we're going to uh, talk about the Eucharist, if we're going by Scripture alone, we know one thing. Jesus said, after the blessing of the bread, this is my body, this is my body. And the Catholic Church sees Jesus Christ as John the Baptist did and as Paul did, as the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, our God, the Passover lamb. Uh, John the Baptist, uh, John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb. Well, what's very significant for that, for the Catholic Church, is understanding that, that the Jewish people in the time of Christ understood very well, like Paul and John, uh, was that the Passover was not complete. The Passover was not complete in Exodus until the Passover lamb was consumed. Um, you couldn't just have the, the blood of the lamb that was was slain. Uh, it, that wasn't complete. It was actually the Passover had to be complete, and it was not complete until the lamb was consumed. That's why Jesus said, this is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and eat. He didn't say this represents my body. This is a symbol of my body. He says, this is my body, because Jesus is the new Passover lamb. That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Let's celebrate the feast. And he's talking about the feast of Passover. What do you do in Passover? How is the feast celebrated? By consuming the lamb. And that's why we consume Jesus Christ. We believe that he is, uh, the, the bread that he gives is his flesh. This is my body. This is my, this is my flesh. He didn't say, um, this represents my flesh, this represents my body, this is a symbol of my body, this is a symbol of my blood. And Jesus says, unless you eat of the flesh of Son of Man, you have no life in you. So that we know by God's grace, uh, in terms of for those who perhaps uh, may not be believers, but be possibly be saved, uh, we believe this is absolutely true. Uh, but no good can be done except by the grace of God, which the church teaches. For example, we have the Good Samaritan. He was a non-believer, but yes, he was justified by God, by his work of mercy. Uh, the others were believers, but they they passed by because they didn't put that uh, they didn't put anything into action. They didn't love. The good Samaritan was a non-believer, but he was justified before God uh, because of his kindness, his work of mercy. But of course, that can't be done. Any good can't be done apart from God, who uh, who instills that grace in us to do such that. So, um, and like I said, Paul says, even if one has all faith but does not love, it's useless. So it's not faith alone. Uh, the church teaches we are saved by grace. And the church teaches that uh, we must cooperate with grace. We must persevere to the end. Because Jesus himself said this. Jesus, the Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, says you must persevere to the end. So he didn't say, you know, right right now, um, you have to persevere to the end. You have to take up your cross each day. You have to become like a little child. There's so many things that we have to do to cooperate with God's grace. We have to love him and cooperate with his grace. Uh, that, that, that's what the church teaches. And that's why uh, I'm, I believe that the Holy Spirit has blessed me to remain in his church. Um, and uh, I think that's my time. Thank you so much. That's uh, good. Awesome. Thank you. So now we'll go to uh, I think it's seven minute rebuttals. So I'll do my seven minute rebuttal. Let me get the clock up here.
make sure that's right and I'll go ahead and get started so okay so let me I want to try to go through the different points that I uh, had taken down as you were going through it and I want to address the first point um, which is is that I brought in many other things in addition to the Eucharist like baptism and uh, works for salvation that wasn't specific to the debate title. The reason that I did that, and I tried to mention in my opening statement, the reason why I, I mentioned baptism, the Eucharist, penance, indulgences, mass cards, prayers, all of those things, um, was, was to give an illustration as an introduction showing the difference, the overall picture of the, the major differences between um, the soteriological perspective of, of Catholicism versus free grace. So. Um, and then I wanted to narrow down, which I did, I, I narrowed down from the, the bird's eye view of salvation to specifically the Eucharist and its role within salvation for the Catholic. So um, that was my intent for that. I wasn't purposely trying to make an argument that you would have to argue against all these other things um, as opposed to the Eucharist. Uh, so I, I apologize if that's the way it came across. That wasn't my intention. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to make it clear that was the bird's eye view to narrow it down. So um, I won't. I won't spend any time rebutting any of the things that you had mentioned for good works um, and baptism as necessary for salvation. Since I know that you were addressing that as something that I, uh, you, you would uh, see that I was making an argument for for this debate, which again that wasn't my intention. So let me try to focus a little bit more on on uh, the Eucharist in particular. So now you, you one of the things that you had mentioned and in, in, um, specifically with with the Eucharist is Jesus as the Passover lamb. It's one of the last statements that you made, and you said that he declared, he was declared by John, he was typified in the Exodus, and the consummation of, of the Passover, the manna that came from heaven, was the completion of the Passover. Now, let me start with this. The pa I think the Passover is essentially the, the groundwork for where the, the conversation of the Eucharist should start. The Passover obviously is a celebration of the event that they uh, that was once called the Passover. It was it was when the destroyer, uh, the angel of destruction, was to pass over the house houses that were covered by the blood. Um, there were three doorposts, the the top and both sides, that were to be covered by the blood of a lamb. And if if that if that wasn't covered, then there was a consequence for that. It was the firstborn male that should should be killed. And that's why they called it the Passover, and it's pictured through Jesus Christ as being the blood that covers our sins so that we don't have to face the destruction in, in, at the judgment. So it's literally, even in the Passover, a, a typological, a typological um, type, if, if that's the way you want to put it. It's a type showing that Jesus Christ is the only covering for our sins. And when we get to the judgment, that's going to be what passes over um, our, our judgment is whether we have the righteousness of Christ covering us or our own righteousness. So um, now you said that specifically in John 6 is where the reference has to go back to. And you said that it, it's not a symbol. He didn't say it is a symbol of my body or that it re represents my body. So I want to spend a little bit of time in John chapter 6 for the remainder of this rebuttal. And let me start with this. I, I think it's important to, to point out that the conversation starts specifically as, as we would see it in relating the Passover and the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper is what we call it, the Lord's Supper and Communion, um, where it starts with a question in verse 30. It says, They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? 
And, and Jesus is about to explain the sign, the type, the picture, what he is explaining to them as uh, the work that he does that they can believe. So here's a sign that they can believe. And the controlling verses in verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But notice the problem Jesus encountered is given in verse 36. 36 but I said unto you that you, you also have seen me and believe not. So we observe our Lord uses the word believe in verse 35 and in verse 36. And the first, he shows that to believe in him is to never thirst or hunger. And the second, he shows that some of those present did not believe, and this was the problem. In verse 40, we notice the promise of eternal life is to those who believe. Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. Again, in verse 47, we observe, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. At this point, Jesus says simply, I am the bread of life, in verse 48. He's not saying that he is literal bread. He's contrasting the sustenance which he gives to his own with that of the manna given to the Jews in the wilderness. They ate it and they died. But the one who eats of Christ will not die. Now here is the rub. Romanists believe that Jesus was telling people to literally eat him. We see he masterfully uses the figure of bread as it is the common sustenance of the day, representing himself as the fulfillment of the manna, the type given to the Jews in the wilderness. Christ himself is the anti-type of that manna. And you see in verse 51, the much disputed uh, verse, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Lord does, he goes on to repeat the same essential thought, only adding to it the drinking of his blood in verse 53. So the entire pericope ends in verse 59, and the Romanist would think that the astonishment of the Jews upon hearing this was due to the fact that they understood him clearly and simply could not grasp that they could literally eat and drink Jesus' uh, body and blood. Now, with this, we would agree, but he really did want to be eaten in some physical, that he literally did want to be eaten in some physical way. We say they did not have a right understanding of Jesus' words. The Jews in John 6.52, like Rome, took Jesus as though he wanted them to be cannibalistic. They, like Rome, were wrong when they, they were disgusted and cried, cried out in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Rome thinks they were on track, but left Jesus uh, but left before Jesus would show them how to eat him at the Last Supper. Notice Jesus was standing there right in front of them the whole time, his literal body and his blood. And it wasn't his literal body and blood that was consumed, but it was the type as, as explained in verse 30 as uh, the anti-type of Jesus being the manna that came down from heaven in the wilderness, uh, which they pointed to with the fathers coming out of the Exodus. So let me give that back to you, and I'll put seven minutes up on the board for your rebuttal. Sure. Okay, uh, getting back to John 6, we can, we, can, we can do that, sure. But I think what's very specific is that uh, there's a difference between what the Catholic believes Jesus Christ means uh, by belief. You know, even Satan believes in Jesus. Satan acknowledges Jesus. I believe James talks about this. But what is the opposite of belief? What is the opposite of belief? John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son of Man. But John 3.36 says, whoever disobeys. So the opposite of belief is disobey. So it's, we can't just believe in Jesus. I believe he's a Savior. We have to believe in everything he teaches. We, have, we can't just separate his teaching. 
from Jesus. That's why Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He's not mute. He's not the eternal mute. He's the eternal word. And so we believe in Christ and everything he teaches. And that's why we have to follow everything he teaches. Uh, he said, unless you repent. You can't just believe that. Oh, I believe that. You have to do it. You have to um, you have to uh, you have to obey, and that's why Jesus Christ Himself said, "Being that He is the new Passover Lamb, He's He in Hebrews it says the old surpassed by the new. So if the supernatural bread from heaven was something that the people ate, it wasn't a symbol of food; it was actually food. And Jesus Christ, the the, the bread that I gave is my flesh. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, that's why even the Lutheran churches." themselves believe uh, in some other Protestant churches that it is uh, the divine presence of Christ. Um, but Jesus said, after the blessing, this is the, the, the main thing, after the blessing of the bread, this is my body. He didn't say this represents my body. He didn't say this is a symbol of my body. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Take and eat because he is the new Passover lamb. He is the new bread from heaven. And again, if we talked about Exodus 12. I know you'd mentioned the blood. But that's not where it finishes. Exodus 12, the Passover is not complete until the Passover lamb is consumed. That's that's really what a lot of people forget. And uh, they kind of either forget to read that whole passage or they kind of uh, put it to the side. But the Passover is not complete until the Passover lamb is consumed. That's why Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood taken eat. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, let us celebrate the feast. And how do you celebrate the feast? You consume the Passover lamb. So, um, and that's why in Luke 24, 35, uh, what's really interesting is it says, um, after Christ rose from the dead, they said, and they recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. They had trouble recognizing him throughout his his life after he rose from the dead because he had a glorified body. But they, when they did recognize him, the only place where they really did recognize him was in the breaking of the bread because they knew the early church that the breaking of the bread was was Christ himself. He was going to reveal himself in a special way, in this way, as the new bread from heaven, the new manna, he whose flesh is true food, whose blood is true drink, our new Passover lamb. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So um, I'm not upset at all. Please forgive me when you brought up. Uh, I love talking about purgatory and about uh, baptism. Baptism now saves you. Um, stand up and wash away your sins. Be baptized. So baptism is is... And again, in 1 Corinthians 6, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. That's a, that's a reference to baptism uh, by God's grace, by God's grace. Um, but what happens after that is uh, our own free will. Uh, like I said, Paul talks about if we disobey the commandments and we persist in immorality and impurity. And he's talking to Christians. He says, if you do such things, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Um, so, But we believe that um, just as the bread from heaven, which was supernatural bread, uh, it was true, true food. Um, to eat, uh, the old is surpassed by the new. So now we have true food to sustain us on our journey. And that food, of course, is Jesus Christ. We have it in his written word. We have it in his oral word, which came before the written word. And we have it in, in his flesh and his blood, um, which is true food. And his, and his blood, of course, is, is true drink to sustain us on our journey um, as we travel through this life until we persevere to the end, hopefully to be able to cooperate with the, with the grace of God. So um, if we do go by scripture, you know, it's funny because sometimes people say scripture alone, scripture alone. And there's thousands of Protestant churches out there 
they, they claim scripture alone, but they don't really practice scripture alone because everyone's different opinion about what my flesh, my blood means is up to the interpretation of that individual pastor. So it's not so much scripture alone, it's scripture alone plus the interpretation of each pastor because many Protestant churches uh, believe, uh, not many believe, but some do believe um, that it is indeed uh, uh, the divine presence of Christ. But many Protestant churches do not. But Protestant churches do, some do not. But we believe as Catholic Christians that when Jesus said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, like Paul and John the Baptist, that he is the new true Passover lamb. And uh, the Passover lamb is to be not just, uh, is to be consumed, is to be eaten. That's why Jesus says, this is my body. This doesn't represent my body. This is not a symbol of my body. My, the, the bread that I give is my flesh. And it's only after the, uh, the blessing. It's only upon the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we want to look at some of the early church fathers, we have uh, people like St. Ignatius saying, I desire nothing but, uh, you know, I don't desire uh, corruptible food. I desire uh, food that gives me eternal life. And that is, that is the Eucharist. Um, John Chrysostom says, look at, look at the altar. And the priest bent over the sacrifice, praying the sacrifice gift become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Ambrose says the priest offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people as commanded by the Lord in Luke 22. And this sacrifice is indeed the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, Augustine says the bread you see on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is indeed the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr, the Eucharist is not cannibalism. Rather, Jesus provides his very much alive and glorified body. Um, I have no taste, again, that was Ignatius, I have no taste for corruptible food. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. So the early church fathers, the Catholic church, which existed before the uh, New Testament was even written, uh, they all claim the same thing, uh, that it is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, to take Jesus at his word. So thank you for your time, Josh. I appreciate it. I think that's good. Awesome. Okay, so now we've got 20 minutes for cross-examination. I want to put that up on the board. Would you like to go first or second for the cross-examination time? That's fine. I can go first. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't know how many questions I have. I don't know if I have 20 okay. minutes. But, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I, think it's, I think it's interesting. I think no one's really given an opinion on this. But uh, in regards to Scripture alone, if we go by scripture alone, which in, in a sense we really can't, because like, you know, when, when um, but in 1 Corinthians 11.33, Paul in talking about the Last Supper says, as far as the other things regarding this, I will teach them to you when I come. But he never did by, 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 by letter. He never did. So what, what, what do you make of 1 Corinthians 11.33? If you could maybe just read that passage. Or, um, um, if it's, okay, so yeah, let me bring it up. Yeah, let me let me read it here. I'll start in verse verse twenty nine. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we would not we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, uh, that ye come not together and unto condemnation and the rest will I set in order when I come. So what specifically is the question there and, and the rest will I set in order when I come? Is that what well, you're referencing? Yeah, yes. Well, the Catholic Church believes that, um, you know, for example, Justin Martyr, uh, one of the early church fathers, had a, a kind of a established uh, 
a precedent for how the early masses of worship were set up. And I think it's 1 Corinthians 11.33, where Paul talks about certain things that he's going to talk to them and teach them, but not by letter, not by the scripture, not by the written word. He says he'll tell them more when he comes face to face. So um, is there a possibility that there could have been more explanation as far as the Last Supper that was not written down? You know, Paul talks about, I'll say these things to you more when I come. Um, but like, better understanding. Well, he says the rest uh, will I set in order when I come. So I'm not sure. That could that could be a reference to a number of different things. If you're looking specifically at the Lord's Supper, which he's he's talking about here in this in this passage, um, and and what the whole purpose of it is, I think obviously we're talking about. And as you see in verse 25, this do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So. I, I think that one, you're you're showing the remembrance of the Lord's death and His burial and His resurrection, but you're also doing it um, in recognition of His return. So, but 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 to your specific question, as far as like the speculation in verse 34, where He says He's going to set the rest in order when He comes, like, well, is it an incomplete kind of revelation from the Scripture alone that there was probably more to the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or communion than what He's laid out in First Corinthians 11? I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, that it's kind of just speculation. I don't know what the. I, obviously, it would it would be something that you would use to appeal towards the tradition of the church as being what was later revealed as something that Paul gave them that wasn't written. But again, I think that that's that's obviously where our conflict would be. Like, if if the tradition of the church is in conflict to what Paul has already written, then you would have to say, well, the tradition that Paul passed on that he didn't write down was in conflict with what he wrote down earlier. So I don't believe that, that that would be something that Paul would do, even if that's the tradition that would be passed down as a Catholic would, would propo- uh, promote there. So, um, But, you know, that's probably the best I could do with, with that sort of an open-ended question there. It's just kind of speculation on both both parts. Thank you. It was, kind of, it was kind of open-ended, I'm sorry, but it just kind of talks about, you know, when he's talking about the Last Supper, and he says, I will tell you more when I come. So I was just thinking the possibility of Paul. You're, you're right. We have to, when Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians says, adhere to what I taught you either by letter or by word of mouth. You know, he also gave teachings that were by oral tradition. Not everything was written down. But you're, you're right. It can't conflict with one another. Right. Sure means it hasn't. But it was just an interesting question I thought about when Paul says, I'll, I'll tell you more when I come. And he didn't He didn't write that down. What, yeah, he, what, he no. told, what he told people. Um, I have a question for you, Josh. Like, why do you think that uh, two things, you know, like you said, Jesus took on all our punishments, mm-hmm. all our, you know, like they say, I believe that the Catholic Church teaches, you know, like I said, David was forgiven, but he was punished. And second, five, the believers after death shall be rewarded, but also punished for the bad they've done in the body. So why do you think believers mm-hmm. who are not, not taking the body and blood seriously, it says here they'll be punished, and some of them actually being sick and dying because of not discerning the body of the blood of Christ. And he's talking about the Last yeah. Supper. So why, why were they being punished? And were they, were they receiving a mere symbol? No, you know what? I think this is where, uh, this is a really good point to bring up. It's something to consider. Um, I think that one thing that I really like, um, that I do like about um, what the Catholic Church does with the Eucharist. I disagree 100% that, that it's a salvific manner, that it's ongoing justification. Obviously, that's the whole purpose of our debate. But what I do appreciate 
is uh, the the emphasis of the value on the Lord's Supper. I think that that we, uh, if you want to call us Protestants, I think that that's something that we should do more on. I think there should be more emphasis on the importance and the relevance of the Lord's Supper in a person's life. Um, and specifically, when we talk about the ordinances of the church, we, we see two ordinances of the church. First would be baptism, and then the Lord's Supper and communion would be the second ordinance, specifically related to the ordinances of the church. That's not mentioning the ordinances of uh, the ordinance of marriage or anything like that, because that's separate. But what we're talking about is, is related to that second ordinance, the Lord's Supper and communion. We look at those two things in categorically. So the Lord's Supper is, is going to be fellowship of the Lord. That's going to be something that's 100% between you and God. Uh, un- any unconfessed sin, like make sh- making sure that your, um, your fellowship with God and Christ is where it needs to be. And then communion would be your fellowship and your relationship between the brethren and the church. So that would be the, the two aspects of that ordinance, is making sure that the unity within the body of Christ is where it needs to be. And when you partake of the Lord's Supper... One, you're doing it in remembrance of Christ, and you're doing it in remembrance of his sacrifice, but you're also doing it in, in the hope and expectation of his return. So there's, there's two aspects of it there with the fellowship, one with Christ and two with the brethren. So I think when you see uh, the emphasis on those who were punished and partaking of it unworthily, one, you've got some people who would partake in the Lord's Supper, uh, specifically who would not be professing believers. They're not real believers. You would have some people who had participated in, in it that could be children. You could have some people, but specifically and related to your question, for those who are punished, some who are sick and some who fall asleep, some who die, um, that would be a reference to those who have some sort, I, I, I mean, it's, it's speculation on what it is exactly, um, but what I can say based off of what the Bible tells us is it's based off of your fellowship with Christ and your fellowship with the unity of the brethren and you partake in this thing that's supposed to be so so relational as as to actually like bringing you back to the cross with Christ and recognizing what happened there on the cross with Christ and at, in his death his burial and then his resurrection all of that is supposed to be um, taking place not 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 in a literal sense of taking place at the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper it's supposed to be um, you bring, you're going back in your heart and, and going back to that, that place that's new and renewed in fellowship with Christ and the brethren. So I think that's, that would be um, some sort of the relation between the punishment that you would see there and, and partaking of it unworthily. Not in the sense, and that might be a good question for you and how you would partake unworthily there, but, but that would be my take on that. No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I just, I think that was just one of my initial things too. Is why would, because Paul's talking to believers. Right. He's writing to believers, so a lot of the Protestant pastors believe that God, Jesus Christ, took on all our punishments. Like where the Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ, God, the Eternal Son, the foretold Lamb of God, took on the eternal punishment that we deserve. But the temporal punishments are still there, and that's why you know we can. Not, so we that, so that's why we believe that too. That I mean, here's believers and they're being punished. So Jesus didn't take on these punishments. Apparently, you know what I mean. These are still being punished. They're believers yeah. and they're being. Punished. Yeah. So let me take that. Let me take that. So um, now this is where we we 
I'll, I'll take a bird's eye view of soteriology and get make it more specific. We believe there's seven judgments in the Bible. All right, three of them are related to a believer. All right, You're, you've you've got three categories: sinner, son, and servant. Um, before you are saved, you are judged as a sinner. You're under the condemnation and the wrath of God. There's no doubt about that. Your sins were placed on Christ. He's called our substitute. He is our substitute on the cross who paid for our sins, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. All right, so now once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he imputes his righteousness to you. That's the doctrine of imputation. His, his, impu, his, in, his righteousness is now imputed to the sinner, so the sinner is no longer a sinner, but he's a son. So now you're a son of God, 1 John 1, 12, for as many as who believe on him, uh, to them gave he the right to be called the sons of God. All right, so now you're a son of God, and you're judged as a son. This would be the chastening of the Lord, the temporal punishments that you are talking about as a Catholic, not to pay for your sins to become righteous, but because it's a fellowship issue between you and your Father. All right, so, so our Savior, Jesus Christ, God our Father, we're placed in Christ who places us with the Father, who gives us to the Father, and we have a promise of a resurrection one day, John 6, 44. Because we are in Christ, we can never be cast away. We can never be plucked out of his hand. You're judged as a sinner. Hebrews 13 and, uh, and what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 11:32. But when we're judged, uh, we are chastened to the Lord, uh, that we should not be condemned with the world. So you've got a contrast there. The chastening would be a reference to the judgment of the Son in this life as a Christian who gets out of fellowship with God and, and specifically with the Lord's Supper reflection back and getting back in fellowship with God so you don't have the chastening to get right and to live right and all of those things. But he contrasts that with being condemned with the world, the condemnation of the world that we saw earlier. You are condemned already when you're outside of Christ. The wrath of God abides on that person, that sinner. But when you have the righteousness of Christ, you're a son. And when you get to be with the Lord, you've got what's called the judgment of uh, the servant. So you're not judged on your service to be saved. You're judged based off of your service as a servant for what God called you to do. Did you do that? Did you not do that? That's where you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and what you had made reference to earlier with, with the cleansing fires, the purgatorial fires to cleanse you from the sins that weren't cleansed by Christ. And, and that weren't covered under the blood of Christ, that didn't consume uh, you, that you didn't consume through the Eucharistic participation in the Mass, confession, all of those things. Um, but specifically, the judgment of the servant is something that is a, a judgment for rewards as opposed to um, your salvation. So those there's two there's two two different categories there, and this is specifically. I'll wrap it up with this for a long answer, a short answer, try to keep it as short as I can, but um, you've got a difference here with Catholicism and free grace theology that teaches lordship salvation versus lordship sanctification. All right, so the lordship salvation says you have to live right in order to be saved, lordship salvation. If he's not lord of your life um, of all, then he's not lord at all. The free grace theology and soteriological perspective says you, are, you can never be unsaved. You can never walk away from God. You are his, but you're his son now. You cannot be unborn. You cannot be unborn just like the reference you made in John 3 with uh, being born of water. You say that's baptism. We say that's your first birth. You're born of water, your first birth f through your mother. And the second birth is that birth that he, he's talking about with regeneration, except you're born again. 
So you've got the first birth and the second birth, your natural birth and then your spiritual birth. And neither of those have anything to do with water baptism. But I'll, I'll sum it up this way. The sanctification part is your walk with the Lord. That's, that's, that's where we talk about uh, the will of God and becoming conformed and tr not conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind um, to becoming more like Christ daily by, be by becoming in fellowship with him more. And specifically as it relates back to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, if you want to call it that. So um, hopefully that answers your question. I hope I didn't um, get off on that too much. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I just have some disagreements a little bit with that, but that's about sonship and about uh, punishments. You know, Paul talks about those who are servants, who are children of God through baptism, the water baptism. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter talks about baptism now saves you and as the waters from Noah uh, for the flood. Uh, so it wasn't the birth of the, like it's natural birth. It was from spiritual rebirth. Washing. But Paul talks about uh, those who are, are Christians, baptized Christians, and uh, but they, they, they persist in immorality and impurity by breaking the commandments, uh, by not walking the walk, and so they're not they're not going to enter the kingdom. So, uh, but in regards to, uh, yeah, it was just punishment because I know many people Protestants, First Corinthians three is all about rewards uh, for the servant, but it's also about punishments too. In Second Corinthians five, you should be given uh, recompense for the good, but also for the bad. Right. So, uh, in regards to, uh, I'm sorry. So more more on that on. on so what what do you uh, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? Um, I don't know. Do you want me to address that reference that you had made on baptism in First Peter three twenty one? It's totally uh, up to you. I know you've running out of time. Uh yeah, please, and and also if you could type First Peter three twenty one with First Corinthians six eleven, where it says when Paul says we've been washed. Um, I'd have to, let me, okay, so let me start with 1 Peter 3.21. I'll, I'll keep it short. I know you've got four and a half minutes left and you've got another question. So, um, so let me, I'll just read it and, uh, it, I'll start in verse 20. It says, which sometime were disobedient when once long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is eight souls were saved by water. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the rest of that sentence is verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So let me just start this way. The, the water's saving people, right? What's that, what's that a picture of? He, he takes it back to Noah, all right? And, and Noah would be the anti-type of, of the water saving him. But what we do is when we look at water baptism and we see that those who are plunged under water baptism were buried with him in the likeness of, uh, we would say were buried with him in the likeness of his, his death, were, were um, in his resurrection, were raised with him into life, into new life. So it's a recognition of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, what exactly did that do for Noah? Well, the water's back with Noah, whoever it touched, it killed. All right, so if Noah's the anti-type, it wasn't the waters that saved Noah. It was the ark that saved Noah through the waters. Right, so if Noah was actually plunged into the waters, he would have died with everyone else who died there in Genesis 6. But specifically, what we see is the ark is a type of Christ. You see that you've got one door. Jesus Christ is the door. You see one entrance into the ark. The ark is going to be a picture of the, the, um, the security of the believer. Once you're in there, you're safe from the wrath of God that's poured out on the world. You're safe from the chastisement of God on the world, the condemnation, all of those things. And uh, that's the protection of the believer in Christ. The ark is the type of Christ. It's our salvation. It brings us through the waters of this world. Um, but, but what is it specifically? So water baptism. It, 
it, it talks about saving us, but he, he gives a clear reference. The Catholic, and, and what you're, you would say, Matthew, is um, the baptism is what places us into Christ. Specifically, you would probably say the, the church. And, and, but, he, but Paul, or Peter, what he, he goes on to say is it's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. All right, so it's not the water cleansing you that would save you, but, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. So it's, it's saving you of a good conscience towards God. So why do we say that's important? Well, we say that's important because when you look, everybody's got doubts of their salvation in life. When you look back and say, well, man, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, we look back at baptism and say, well, we know that you're saved, not because baptism saved you, but because this is the profession of faith that you can look back on like a wedding ring on your finger something that is eternal, not that placed you into Christ, but is a profession of when you were placed into Christ. You can look back on that and say, like the ring on my finger, this is what happened. I've got the security. I know this is true. I can trust it and have faith in it, and etc. But as you were talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, how does that relate back to? Was it 1 Corinthians 6? Yeah, believe 1 Corinthians 6, 11. In regards to just Peter's 3, 21, says, yeah, you know, it's not the flesh. That's why it's clean. You're right. It's not the flesh. It's the spirit. It's, I mean, it's the soul inside. That's why it's a regeneration. And I think that's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, or in Acts 22, says, wash away your sins. Be baptized. So it's, it's the water and the spirit that come together. But 1 Corinthians 6, 11, I believe it says, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. And that's yeah. what takes place with baptism. But that's what, the, I'm sorry, that's, yeah, that was the question for 1 Corinthians 6. Um, um, no, that's good. So let me, let's talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 11 real quick. It says, And such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in, this, in the name of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so let me, let me point this out, guys. For those of you who have not seen this before, you'll see what some people like to look at as, as a contrast between 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5. Galatians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is, is talking about who you were before you were saved. Galatians 5 is talking about the works of those who are um, not saved. So you've got works of the flesh in Galatians 5 contrasted with the works of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and then you've got a contrast here of, uh, of the actual identity of a person before they're saved. All right, so he says, but such were some of you, all right? And he gives a big list of fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves, nor thieves, nor covetous, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, all of these things. You, those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now we see, but such were some of you, verse 11. So now it's contrasting the not saved people from the saved people. All right, now you're a son of God. You're no longer that. You're no longer that. You can still do those things and, 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 be, and sin and do stupid stuff as as a Christian, because you will do that. Everyone sins. I don't, none of us would argue, neither of us here would argue with that. But then he says, you're sanctified, you're washed, you're washed, you're sanctified. Now you're, you're reading into that to say, well, this is water baptism. But notice that water isn't mentioned at all in this passage. It's not mentioned once. And when you contrast this with what a free grace soteriological perspective on the washing would be here, is the washing of the Holy Spirit, the re washing of the regeneration of the Word. This is the, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The, there's seven different baptisms in, in the Bible. So when you see baptism, it just means immersed. Um, and specifically, when we talk about baptism of the Spirit, you're immersed in the Spirit, not through the waters. You're immersed into the waters of the Spirit by the regeneration of the Spirit, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby the Spirit is sent and you're sealed 
until the day of redemption. So that's where we would say this verse is a reference to spiritual regeneration, spiritual washing, as opposed to water wa- water washing. Um, but I know you had one more question, and we're out of time, but that's fine. I, I do want to get your question in so I don't just gaslight the whole time. That's okay. I was just going to mention something about the church fathers. Could you mention any church yeah. father that they did talk about the spirituality of it? Like, for example, Jesus is, you know, is God. Yeah. Uh, which is God is spirit. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but uh, it's also the flesh. But but they did talk about spiritual the spirituality and um, the literal, literacy. Uh, I think there was close to 30 church fathers that said it, that, that they become the elements transformed uh, into the body and blood of Christ. So is there any church father you can say that said held this only as a symbol? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because um, obviously I, I don't place a ton of emphasis on the early church fathers in the sense of them being authoritative, whether it's in conjunction with or um, in, in addition to the scriptures. I think the scriptures are my final authority. And the early church fathers' writings are very beneficial. I think they're good. I love reading the early church fathers. Um, but they're they're just as fallible as you or I. Um, but specifically as it's related to baptism, I, I, and I was going to bring this up in my closing statement, and I'm glad that you brought it up here so I don't have to. Um, let me just read a few. All right, so let's see. Tertullian from 155 to 220 uh, in his book on, against Marcion, cha- uh, book 1, four, uh, chapter 14. He says this, Indeed, up to the present time he has not disdained the water, which the Creator made wherewith he washes his people, nor the oil with which he anoints them, nor that union of honey and milk wherewithal he gives them the nourishment of children, nor the bread by which he represents his own bot- proper body, thus requiring in his very in his very sacraments the beggarly elements of the uh, Creator. Now he refers to the communion supper as spiritual words, where he says, "It is true that the flesh profiteth nothing, but then." As in the former case, the meaning must be regulated by the subject which is spoken of. Now, because they thought of, uh, they thought his discourse was harsh and intolerable, supposing that he had really and literally enjoined on them to eat his flesh, he, with the view of ordering the state of salvation as a spiritual thing, set out with the principle, it is the spirit that quickeneth, and then added the flesh profiteth nothing. Meaning, of course, to the giving of life, he also goes on to explain what he would have us to understand by spirit. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In a like sense, he had previously said, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but shall pass from death to life. Now, let me uh, finish this up here and then I'll, I'll give it back to you. He says, uh, because to the word had become flesh, we ought therefore to desire him in order that we may have life, and to, de- to devour him with the ear, and to ruminate on him with the understanding, and to digest him by faith. Now just before the passage in hand, he had declared his flesh to be the bread which cometh down from heaven, and pressing on his hearers constantly under the figure of necessary food, the memory of their forefathers who had preferred the bread of, in flesh of Egypt to their divine calling. You also see this with uh, Theodoret, Theophilus of Antioch, uh, Origen, Eusebius, Cyril of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria, Augustine has three, three quotations, and then Athenagoras as well. So there would be a number of church fathers that would support my perspective there. Okay, all right, because I know they talked about spiritualism, absolutely, but also literacy, for example, Origen, Tertullian, also Augustine did talk about 
how the elements transform into the body and blood of Christ. Um, okay, we you know so funny. It's very interesting. You brought up that we're going by Scripture alone. You said that you're fallible, and I'm fallible. So to 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 say, oh, I can't, I shouldn't believe the church fathers. Then maybe you know, who am I to believe you in your interpretation? And you can say, who am I? You can say the same thing about me. So if we do go by Scripture alone, Jesus says, my flesh is true food. This is my body after being blessed. So we have to go by Scripture alone. But I mean that apparently we don't we don't always do that because we do go by fallible men to seek what is Scripture saying because no one really goes by Scripture alone. They try they say they do. You know when Jesus says uh, after the after the blessing the bread was blessed it's mere bread it's then blessing goes this is my body and then we have fallible Jesus didn't mean that. So in one sense, you're right. I guess in the end we'll find out when we die. But to say that, you know, we shouldn't listen to a church father, or, you know, then who, we shouldn't listen to anybody. We should just read the book and have the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's just my take. Yeah. I'm sorry. Because uh, no, you're good. I'm glad that you brought that up. I'll address it real quick and then, and then go over to uh, my questions to you and go from there. So um, one thing that, that I'll just say real quick regarding Sola Scriptura and what you brought up specifically, there's, there's two categories that we've got to distinguish here. One is Sola Scriptura versus interpretation. All right, so what, what you're really asking me is um, not do we go off of Sola Scriptura, but who do we hold in authority for our interpretation of the Scripture? All right, so that's where your, where your tradition would come in conjunction with Scripture, because you believe Scripture. I mean, you would say you believe Scripture. You would say that um, Scripture is, is not, and I don't believe Scripture is alone. I think that the idea of, of holding Scripture alone um, is can be misleading. It's terminology that I don't really like because it's got a lot of misconceptions with it. I think that there needs to be a really good explanation for what we mean by sola scriptura. And when I say sola scriptura, I'm not a five solas um, Calvinist. I, I believe I believe that we need the whole counsel of God um, in conjunction with the Scripture, so we don't we don't end up with proof text to prove um, a pretext. Uh, so that's kind of where I would start with that. I know that would be a whole other topic and debate in and of itself, and a very worthy debate um, as well. So let me put 20 minutes on the board for me, and I'll get into my questions. I want to start out, I've got three categories of questions. They're going to be some quick. The first five are just going to be, you should be able to just say yes or no, because I know you've spent a lot of time on answering these already. And then I'll give you a, a couple softball questions and then get into some deeper questions. So, all right. Now, um, the first question, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven? You've already said yes on that, but I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I clarify. Uh, I see, um, that's that's the route that the, um, Jesus Christ talks about, but there, okay. are always, there are always exceptions. Okay. And do you have to be confirmed in the Catholic Church to go to heaven? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, do you have... Do you have to participate in the Mass to go to heaven? No. Do you have to participate in the Eucharist to go to heaven? No. There's exceptions to every rule. Like, for example, babies, children that die at three or four years old, they don't have a chance. People who have never heard of uh, the preaching of Christ. The Good Samaritan was justified by his works. He was a okay. non-believer. So I believe somebody moved by God's grace or, you know, uh, anyone who for somehow or another was deprived of having that we see the thief on the cross uh jesus yeah. says um unless you were baptized of both water and spirit like i think it'd be kind of silly for him to say unless you first were born of your mom like everybody in the whole world was born of your mom it's like okay. it'd be kind of silly to say that. i think he says unless you're born of both water and spirit 
And I think when 1 Corinthians 6 says you have been washed, and that washing is the Holy Spirit mixed with the water. Um, so I believe that that's how, that's how Christ established it, but there are exceptions uh, to everything. Sorry about the okay. long answer. You know, for example, like, in, we're all able <laughs> to die yeah. through, because of sin, but Enoch and Elijah did not die. There's exceptions. The thief on the good cross, the thief on the cross is not baptized, but he had that baptism of desire. It was a last minute uh, call. But um, you know, uh, when 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 Saint, when Saint Saul was had the conversion, they said to Paul, "Rise and go to someone. I think it was Ananias, and be baptized. Have your sins washed away." So I think that's how that the step is to go. But there are exceptions for people outside, but who moved by the grace of God. Okay, so say, no, you're good, you're good, you're good. Um, I and and um, obviously you've got to elaborate on some of those. Okay, so that and that's fine. Now, um, do you have to have good works to go to heaven? Um, no, I just I do think that God will. Matthew twenty five, God is going to judge like Matthew sixteen, Matthew twenty five, Romans two. Uh, uh, you know, it's just that that God will judge us by our works. And if we don't show mercy, if we don't bear fruit, Jesus says to those of you who do not bear good fruit, um, Jesus says, if you do not show mercy, if you do not forgive your neighbor, you, you yourself will not be forgiven. So, I mean, um, as a, there can be somebody who's a, a Christian, but um, if, if you don't forgive, neither will be forgiven. So I, I think we do have to have, I think everything is up to the grace and mercy of God because he sees the heart. We, we, we don't, sometimes we judge people. We don't know why. But God sees the heart, and if we, if we don't, if we don't show mercy, James says, "Faith um, can that faith save him if he does not show mercy to the one in need?" So, um, I think it's complicated. It's easy, but it's complicated. I think God sees the heart of each individual person to judge whether or not. Um, but He's going to judge everyone according to one's works or lack of works. That's what. Okay. Now, do you have to? And, and these are all these are all just real surface level. Do you have to have penance to go to heaven? Um, I, I don't think so, but if you don't, I think that's where the purification process takes place. When Jesus says, um, again, like talking about eternal and temporal punishment, um, Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Uh, Peter says, love one another because love covers a multitude of your sins. So I think uh, the book of, uh, um, I think it's uh, Proverbs and Deuteronomy talks about with sin has every consequence. So. There's a temporal and eternal punishment. So I think if we don't atone for those temporal punishments uh, that we can do, the book of Daniel, atone for your sins by practicing mercy to the, uh, to the oppressed. Uh, Proverbs 16, obedience and loyalty uh, can atone for sin. Um, Jesus says, give alms and you shall be clean within. And uh, Peter says, love one another for love covers a multitude of your sins. Okay. So we think if we don't have that purification here on earth, like you mentioned before, we have to be sanctified. Like if you're not sanctified right now, let's just say for example, right? Or let's just say for example, if I'm not sanctified right now, you know I me, mean? we have to be sanctified over the course of our life. And in five seconds, I, I die of a, I get hit by a car. Like what happens? Because I haven't been sanctified on earth and I still have to be sanctified to get into heaven. You know, uh, the book of Hebrews says we must all strive for that holiness. But I think that sanctification, that purification, if it hasn't taken place on earth, will take place and we will be made righteous. If I have some sarcasm inside of me, sarcasm, or if I judge somebody, Jesus says we're going to be held accountable for every careless word, every impure thought, um, every time we judge people. So if we haven't done anything to kind of atone for those temporal punishments, we're going to have to make that up um, in, in the afterlife if we are saved by God's grace. 
Okay, and obviously I, I would draw a distinction there between justification and sanctification. It seems that you're, you're saying sanctification is, is the same as justification. But let me get back to, um, let me get back to this. I want to make sure I've got this. Okay, so now you say that none of those five questions that I asked as requirements for salvation are necessary in order for a person to go to heaven in, in, in uh, specific cases. Now let's say for a Catholic. A Catholic wants to go to heaven. Do they have to be baptized, be confirmed, partake in the Mass, in the Eucharist, have good works and penance to go to heaven or even to purgatory? Um, I, I, I think it's the rite of initiation. Uh, you know, and I don't think it's mere symbolic. You know, like when, again, with like, um, they said to Peter in, in Acts, what, what, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So baptism washes away our sins repent and be baptized peter said so we believe that 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 baptism uh water baptism water not just water but the holy spirit is is with the water it's jesus said to both of water and spirit so we have to have that you know paul i was called to be baptized upon his conversion it wasn't symbolic but there's always those exceptions if somebody's uh you know if somebody has uh you know good intentions if they have by the grace of god are saved but it didn't have time to confess their sins we don't have to confess our sins in one sense to, to a priest. We can go straight to God. Of course we can. But if we look at uh, you know John 20, 23, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. So you go out and you forgive sins and you retain sins by the authority I gave you. So we just go as a, um, you know, Paul says we have become ambassadors by Christ. Okay. We reconcile to God through us. So there's always that, that way to go, that direction that God, you know, Jesus says, here's the way to go. Be baptized. Um, keep the commandments if you wish to enter into life, and if you don't, repent of okay. your sins. I'm sorry, but there's always the exception, like for somebody who, like the thief on the cross, or somebody yeah. is just about being a car accident or dying, and there's no access to a priest, or there's no access to to showing, you know, this to be baptized. So I'm so sorry yeah. about the long answer. It's just I think this, it's just that's the way to go, but there are yeah. exceptions. Okay, so we, you and I need to do a baptism debate sometime. Uh, <laughs> we need to get that. Um, we need to do that. But also, um, obvious, and obviously I disagree with the, um, the being sent to forgive sins. I think that's obviously a reference to um, the fellowship of sins between brothers. I don't think any man has been given the authority to forgive sins against God. They were given the authority to, to forgive sins against man. But let me go back to, all right, here's the softball questions. And then I need to get into these deeper questions. I'm about halfway through. Softball okay, questions. Now, now, you don't believe that any of those five things are necessary for salvation, but but they're the right of initiation for a Catholic, so a Catholic should do those, and they do play a role in your salvation. So what do you do if it is not administered to some, by someone who is appointed and trained within the Catholic Church? And what do you do with those who believe Jesus is their Savior but cannot receive the Eucharist? You've already answered the second part of that, so let's see. Let's see with the, the first part of the Eucharist and the administration, the softball question. Um, someone who's not... Uh, not what is it appointed and trained within the catholic church to present the eucharist is that is that recognized to, uh, for someone who gives out the eucharist but it's not yes. trained is that what you said it, within the catholic church i don't i don't to be honest uh josh i don't know how they would have access to the eucharist um you know what i mean like without i don't I'm not sure your question i'm sorry like how they would um because the eucharist yeah. is you know um but in regards to one of the questions i i think you know, let's just take a look at James chapter 5. It said the person who is sick, it didn't say call directly upon Jesus Christ. 
It says, call upon the elders. Well, and then it says, let them pray. It says, call upon the elders and let them pray. By the prayers, by their prayers, by their prayers and the anointing of the holy oil, that goes back to Mark 6, um, that acts as an instrument of grace. But it says, um, it didn't say, you know, call upon Jesus Christ directly. It says, call upon the elders. But because God works through these vessels. Uh, in regards to forgiving sins, um, Jesus forgave sins against God. Um, but yet we have Jesus saying, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So as Jesus was given the ability, because he's God, to be able to forgive sins against against both man and God, he gave his authority to the apostles to do the same. Uh, to you know, just, just as Jesus yeah. um, healed demons, just as Jesus all that. But I guess, like I said, in regards to James 5, it says, call upon the elders. Uh, and through their prayers, the prayers of the elders, and the anointing of the holy oil, a person's sins will be forgiven. Okay. But if that person does not have access, for example, in a pandemic, if you can't call upon an elder of the church, elders is Greek uh, for a presbyter and presbyter yeah. means priest. But if there's no access to it, if this, if this, like by desire, um, you you can call upon it by the grace of God. God works through the vessels of His priests, His ordained ministers. But also, if we can't have access to, you know, God is merciful and He, he allows His His means to grace to 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 go through all people. Okay, so, um, all right, now this is going to be, it, it may be strangely worded, but obviously you believe in the Eucharist that it's uh, changed from substance to substance. It's the body, soul, and uh, divinity and blood of, of Jesus, um, and that he's actually present in, in the bread and present in the wine. So this is a question that um, you may find is strangely worded. I hope it's not offensive to you, um, so don't take it that way, but I, I want to understand your perspective do you believe that you are swallowing and drinking God when you partake in the Eucharist? Yes, the glorified uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, yes. Because Jesus himself said, this is my body. This is my body. And, of course, the apostles themselves said, that, you know, Jesus, we don't understand, we don't know, but you have the words of eternal life. So if Jesus says something, if God can become man, if, if uh, God can work through Moses to turn uh, the waters into blood in the river Nile, he can also turn bread into his body uh, and, and wine into his blood. So, yes, I believe Jesus Christ, yes. Okay. Now, let's see. Um, let, let's see. Now, when we talk about the Eucharist, you believe it's the body, soul, uh, blood, and divinity of Jesus. What do you do? What do you do if, uh, if, if it's spilled? Or And don't take this. I'm not trying to be repulsed. I'm, liter I'm just asking an honest question. Like this is the, this is God and the wafer. This is His body. This is His blood. Someone drinks it, or they sp they spill it, or they accidentally like spit it up and upchuck a little bit or something. Um, what do you do with that? Is that Jesus? Is that Jesus on the ground? Is that Jesus mixed with these other things that came out of this person? Is that Jesus on the ground and and the 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 wine and the bread on the ground? And what do you do about that? Uh, yes, and yes, I believe it is. But I mean, if we can say to oneself, but we know that one sense that God can, uh, God's outside of time. For example, like Paul says, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. I know someone had once asked this to me, like, what happens if you, you know, sorry to use this expression, when you go to the restroom, does God, like, does God come, you know, uh, come out through the what, you know, the uh, how we, you know. But I mean, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. So does the Holy Spirit come out through the restroom? Like, I mean, in one sense, God is incorruptible. So, but we do understand that um, God is also sacred, and we try to allow ourselves to be to be sacred 
with the Holy Spirit um, coming in, because we know that we're temples of the Holy Spirit in a very special way, but we're also uh, allowed to partake in an even fuller sense with Christ. Um, do we do we uh, do we do we offend Christ within us if uh, we take drugs, uh, if we take you know excess of alcohol? Is that offensive to the God within us? In one sense, yes; in one sense, no. Like I mean, it, like it's uh, because God is God is within us, you know. But I mean, God is beyond time and flesh. So, uh, so yes, uh, we believe the answer is yes that it, it is God, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And if there is um, the church calls. I remember as a Eucharistic minister myself that if someone does um, accident, like an older person, they go to the nursing home, and sometimes they 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 can't always chew properly. So we take the, the we take the host and we make sure we dispose of it properly in a very sacred and holy way because we don't want to defame it. Um, similar to our bodies, with um, you know, if we don't want to defame um, by having a sexual impurity or sexual immorality, because it's it's not just um, our bodies; it's it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So I don't know if, sorry no, I, no, that's good. I'm glad that you. I'm glad I got an answer on that, and I got your perspective on it. So. Um, let's see. I've got one more softball question. I want to get into these deeper questions. I might go all over on time a little bit if that's all right with you. Um, so let's see. What do you what do you think that Jesus meant? Still a softball question. When he uttered his final words in John nineteen thirty, it is finished. I believe, and I believe the church also teaches when Jesus says it is finished, he was talking about the sacrifice of Passover. Because in one sense, we can't say it's the atonement is finished. In one sense, because Paul later on, I believe it's in Romans, says um, we have uh, Jesus Christ has risen for our justification. So it can't be just, you know, so Jesus, until Jesus rose, in one sense, we were justified. But if we look at the sacrifice, as if the Catholic Church does, the early church does, John the Baptist, Paul, and seeing Jesus as the Passover lamb, um, the Passover tradition, which Jesus celebrated, you know, I have all my life desired to eat this Passover with you. And there was four cups. There was four cups. Yep. Uh, and Jesus did not take the fourth cup, which right. many people thought. like. But that fourth cup he had with the wine was offered to him. And after he received that fourth cup, he says, it is finished. So we believe that that Passover sacrifice, which extends from the sacrifice of the Last Supper, where you eat the Passover lamb to his once and perfect uh, sacrifice on the cross, is that that Passover for us is, is, is finished in that sense for Okay, so I um I, that's good. I, I think it's <laughs> we just did a series on the four cups uh, at our church and specifically related it back to that. But obviously, we've got differences on the interpretation side of it. So that would lead me to uh, my first question for the deeper questions. And this is this has come up in the chats as as well for those of you who are talking in the chats when it comes to the authority and interpretation of the scripture. All right, so you said uh, when it comes to the Passover and it comes to the Eucharist and, and specifically these passages about the Eucharist that we're talking about, that the church teaches, all right? So now we're, t we're talking about church teaching. And obviously there's distinctions between church teaching, dogma, and then um, 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 I, I can't think of the third category there, but that's all right. So now this, this first question is how many passages or verses has the Catholic Church officially interpreted i don't know offhand i'm sorry i, I don't i don't know offhand I, yeah. I don't know if there's a, in the catechism itself where um 
I, I don't I don't know. I'm sorry, Josh. I don't know. I don't. You know what? And I've I can't find an answer to that. I mean, I've asked a, a bunch of different Catholics, um, and and I've looked it up online. I cannot find the, an official number like this is. But I've heard the highest number has been ten. The lowest number that I've seen has been six, 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 six passages, and mm. so that would be that would be something to me. That would be you know something that is obviously important in a conversation like this because when we're talking about the interpretation of the scripture, and you don't have an official interpretation of the scripture or an official interpretation of John six. So, and John six has has John six. Do you know this? You don't know how many, but has John six have had an official interpretation for that that chapter um i I believe it has uh in reference to the catechism when it talks about jesus being our new passover lamb but that would be a teaching though wouldn't it that wouldn't be an official that wouldn't be like a dogma it wouldn't be like uh the pope speaking um with with yeah so but i mean i know that right exactly yeah but like for example i guess everyone you know, there's always like confessions of faith, uh, like the Westminster, right? There's always like a catechismal teaching, right? But I guess when it, it the, the, doc, the doctrine or dogma of the bread and wine being the flesh and blood of Christ, is that's an official teaching. It's not just a, I, you know, like it's, it's. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting the right and, answer. And that's just, okay, so it wouldn't be, you would have an official teaching, but not an official interpretation of it. And maybe that's something you just don't know on the interpretation side of it. Like it, to me, it just seems contradictory. We've got an official teaching on John six, but we haven't officially interpreted it. Like that just seems like you know. I would think that the official teaching would follow the interpretation. I think I think they're both there in one sense, teaching and the interpretation. Like for example, it says that you know that Jesus when Jesus, uh, you know, definitely the church teaches. And it gives a dogma that the body and, and the bread and wine does become the flesh and blood. That's what transubstantiation. But we have some of the early church fathers going back to the elements being transformed. That's where it comes from. Is the, is the power when Jesus says the flesh of prophets, the flesh profits nothing. He is not talking about his own flesh. His flesh profits everything, and the spirit that gives life. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life to the bread, and the bread after the blessing. The blessing is the Holy Spirit. It says after the blessing of the bread. It says this is my body and that's why paul says um um you know the bread and wine when blessed it's a participation in the body and blood of christ so i think that the church gives that interpretation of john 6 like understanding that's why okay. um, this is the blood. all right i've got so i've got four more questions and then i'll be, I'll be done so um I'll, I'll try to go as quick as i can all right so let's let's talk about john 6 and transubstantiation so I'd like to ask this as, as kind of an overarching question, then we'll get more specific with John 6, but do you know when transubstantiation uh, became an official Catholic teaching in history? When did that happen? I think it was in the 1400s. I don't know. But it was 14-something uh, or 16. I apologize. But I do know that the the belief in transubstantiation was always there in the early church. We have um, Paul um, saying that, that the elements, like, a, well, transubstantiation is just usually something is defined when uh, it comes up as being questioned. Like, what, what, what you know, some the, the references were to, um, like, why, why is it, the, isn't it just bread? Isn't it just wine? 
And a transubstantiation is a definition of what takes place at the last supper. You know what I mean? So it's not yeah. just it's something that's new. It's something that was always believed by the early church. Uh, you know, um, Paul says, um, uh, like he says, the body and the bread and wine, when when blessed, becomes the bread and wine when blessed becomes a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Jesus says, apt of the bread, uh, when it was blessed, this is my body. So the blessing is of the Holy Spirit. So if the water can be turned into into blood by the by you know with uh, uh, Moses and the River Nile, bread can be turned into into the blood of Christ. I mean, and the body and blood of Christ. So transubstantiation is just a definition yeah. of what took place at the Last Supper of the Holy Spirit. What happens there? Okay. So it was about twelve fifteen that it was an official teaching. You're saying it was always taught and believed up to that point, but it didn't become official until that point. Do I guess that? Well, the definition of what takes place, what that means, we're starting to question it. That's when, um, you know, there were some people who um, were saying, you know, we don't, we don't believe. We believe it's a symbol. Yeah. We don't believe it takes place. We don't think any's any change. And the Catholic yeah. Church says that change does take place. This is what happens, and this is what it's. Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, next question for someone like me who does believe it's a symbol, and, and based off of John thirty, where they they're asking for a sign. And he describes what's happening here um, as an answer to that sign. You would say you, you you would agree with the Council of Trent, where it says anybody who believes that it is a symbol, that person let him be anathema. So, do you would you say that you agree with the Council of Trent, and you would therefore agree that I should be anathema for believing that it is a symbol? Um, yes and no. <laughs> Just for example, I know it sounds like you know an easy way out, but um. We could say, and I think the church also focuses on this, if somebody truly is seeking the truth, but they don't understand it and walk away, but they still want to, they believe it to be a different interpretation. But if somebody truly knows it's, it's the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, and they, um, they don't, like, like Paul says, for those of you who are who are truly, um, they knew it was the body, the blood of Christ, but they were not uh, examining their conscience. They were not, uh, so they were they were bringing condemnation upon themselves, and they were they were sick and they were dying. Um, but if somebody actually is looking for the truth and doesn't exactly know what it is, but is seeking the truth, God's grace can flow out to them as well. But for someone who knows it's the truth and totally rejects it, um, you know, you know, Jesus Himself said that let these people be. Um, you know, they, they've freely chosen to walk away. Okay. That's why John, so John 6 was funny because it didn't say that many, that many, you know, never believed in him and they walked away. It says many of his disciples. So they were his disciples and they walked away. Um, so we're yeah. freely allowed to walk away. So that would take me back to verse 35 and 36. And I want to get your take on this. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye have also seen me and believe not. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh me I will no wise cast out. All right. So, what um, if you could just give a rundown on those those three verses? What do you what do you see going on there in verses thirty five through thirty seven? The coming, the I believing, believe, all of that. I believe. Yeah, I believe when Jesus says to anyone who believes in me, what happens? I think is sometimes sadly Protestant. Protestant pastors, they stop right there and they just said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. But what do you believe in Jesus? Do you, you don't believe in his 
sometimes they separate his teaching from his person. You know, even James says Satan believes in Jesus. But Jesus, when he says, whoever believes in me, you have to believe in Christ, that he's God, and you have to believe in what he teaches. Yeah. And Jesus says, I teach unto you, I say unto you, my flesh is true food, unless you eat of the flesh of Son of Man. So whoever believes in me, like you have to believe me, uh, you have to believe in me as, as God, that I can do such things, that I can I can do anything. I can turn I can turn water into blood, like I did with Moses at the river Nile. You know, but I can also do these things. So you have to believe me, not just believe. You have to you know you have to obey. Like again, John three sixteen says, "Whoever believes in Christ." But in John three thirty six, it says, "But whoever disobeys the Son of Man." So I think many times the Greek word used is is obey. A belief is one thing, but you have to believe in Christ and apply it. That's why, for example, in several of his, uh, you know, says, you know, blessed rather the one who not just hears the word of God, but the one who acts upon it, the one who does something for God, the one who acts upon it. All right, this will be my last question. I, I've got more, but I, I've obviously gone over on time. So, all right, my last question. In verse uh, verses 47 through 49, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. It seems to me he's drawing a contrast here of the physical manna that the fathers ate in the wilderness and physically died as the sustenance for their bodies being a reference to the spiritual side of the sustenance of Christ and the person's life through belief. So it seems that to me that Jesus is equating belief with uh, the consumption of uh, the bread and the wine as the symbol of the physical of what happened in the Old Testament for what happened spiritually in the New Testament. And I'll try not to convolute it too much. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat in the wilderness and are dead. So he got the physical there. And then in verse 47, very little, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So it seems that when he says he's the bread of life, that believing on him is that eating of Christ and drinking of Christ to have everlasting life. How would, you, how would you respond to that? Sure, I think that goes back to my previous answer. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Is sometimes Protestant pastors or apologists, they say they, they separate Christ from his teaching. Jesus says, my flesh is true food, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood. So the old in Hebrews, it says, is surpassed by the new. So if they actually physically ate supernatural bread in the Exodus, and that's going to be surpassed by the new, which is the physical, physical, true flesh of Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. Um, that's why in um, I guess in First Corinthians 11, some of them were, uh, were 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 not partaking of the true flesh of Christ in, in a way that was was moral, with a way that was up you know uh, in an up uh, upright manner, and they were dying because they were kind of doing similar things to those in Exodus where. And that's why, you know, if we look back in Romans 11, 22, Paul's writing to Christians and he says, look, you know, people in the past were believers in God. They walked with him, but they fell. They fell back and they were no longer of him because of the way they were living. And he says, lest this also happen to you, you be careful. You be mindful not to allow this to happen to you. So um, I believe when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he's not just talking about his person. He's, talk he's talking about his teachings because his teachings and his person can't be separated. And when Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and drink. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, you have to believe Christ when he says that. 
So the belief is not just mere belief of who he is, but what he speaks. Okay, um, so that's going to bring us to closing statements. We've got five minutes each, and then for those of you who are watching live, if you want to call in with your questions, you can. If not, then we'll just wrap it up and go from there. Um, I know we had more watching at the beginning, and uh, it's tailed off now. We've got eight people watching live, so if you wanted to call in at the end, you can. That'll be 816-866-0025, but uh, hang on to that number and just put it on your phone and uh, wait to call if you want to until we're done in 10 minutes. So um, I went first on the opening statement, so I'll go first here, and then and then Matthew, I'll leave it up to you. You can have the, the closing statement for the final word there. So let me get the camera back on me. And i got to get back to my notes here. There it is. Okay, so um, let me move that so it's not on my head. All right, so let's see. Um, we've talked about the early church fathers. One thing that, that Matthew had brought up is, is that uh, he had given me a challenge to point out any one early church father who who uh, did not believe in, in that believed in the, the sign or the symbol as a memorial for what Christ had done as the Eucharist. Um, in the pre in in the actual uh, bread and wine, and I had brought up Tertullian, but I also brought up seven other guys as early church fathers who believed the same thing. So that's why, for me, um, going to the early church fathers is something that's not really that useful in a debate like this because you can find evidence for both sides. And uh, specifically, when we're talking about the Passover meal as a sustenance for ongoing justification versus physical sustenance and a remembrance, those are the, that's the whole thing right there, guys. I mean, if you could put the whole debate in a nutshell, you've got one side who is saying that you, you have to have ongoing justification through uh, grace that, that gives you, um, that gives you the, the works to be able to merit your righteousness. So that's, that's what we would call ongoing justification, um, where you are made righteous as, a, as opposed to being declared righteous. At the end of the day, guys, these are the two, the two concepts that, that this, this whole debate comes down to. The, the Catholic side says that you have to be made righteous. This is, this is through a combination of grace and our response to that grace, cooperating with grace in order to be made righteous, that one day you'll be judged off of your own works, and those works are either going to send you to heaven, to purgatory, where you will go through the cleansing fire of atoning for your own sins and end that fire until one day you do get to go to heaven or you'll go straight to hell. And um, one thing that I'm pointing out is the biggest difference between our two perspectives is is I, I reject 100% completely the idea of ongoing justification as a means for salvation as well as our cooperation with grace in order to merit salvation because of uh, of um, what we call judicial justification. This is where it where Jesus Christ actually declares us righteous versus making us righteous. Now, why can he do that? Why, when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 10, um, why is it that when we show up at the judgment seat of Christ, we're not judged as a sinner like the Catholic would think you are? He, he, the Catholic thinks that you're judged as a sinner when you show up at the judgment seat of Christ and saying, well, here's my good works versus my bad works. And whether I go through the cleansing fire or go straight to heaven or, or go to hell based off of what I did. And uh, ultimately, obviously, the argument is going to be made is whether it's done in love or not. Okay, so, so but, but the other side, my side is saying, well, that's not the case at all, guys. The case with, with your justification and the case with the Eucharist, specifically for this debate, 
is that you are declared righteous because you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You see, when, when Jesus Christ atoned for your sins on the cross, it was a once and for all um, sacrifice. It was done. It was final. When he said it was finished, that was it. It wasn't anything about your ongoing justification for you to pay for your sins and merit grace and merit more grace and earn more grace and cooperate with grace and, and do it in love or all any of those things. That's a completely that's completely separate from your justification. That would be your sanctification. What we've done is they've blended sanctification with justification and they say if you don't live this way and you don't do it with an an attitude of love, then you're not going to get to heaven. You will not be justified. And what I'm saying is that's not the case at all, guys. Take a step back and look at this thing. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be your works that's weighed on one side or the other, the good or the bad. It's going to be your works on this side and the works of Jesus Christ on this side. If Jesus Christ works outweigh your works, guess which one fails? What you need is the works of Jesus Christ imputed to you to where his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And that's what we were explaining when we when I'm taking the, the position of the free grace soteriology. Grace is free. It's not merited. If grace is merited, it's no longer grace, but it's a re, it's it's an earned wage. And and the Bible says that wages of sin is death. Um, but the gift of God is eternal life, and that you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And first John chapter five says that you can know that you have eternal life because you have believed. Because you have believed, and we bring it all the way back to John chapter 6, where we want to discuss whether or not this consumption of the bread and the wine is the, the literal body and blood of Christ, when he's giving an answer to the sign of the question that these people asked him as to understanding uh, the Passover meal with the, the manna that came down out of heaven and the, and the exodus, to receiving Christ and believing on him is to eat and drink his flesh and his blood spiritually. You eat and drink the flesh of Christ is believing on him, and by doing that, you'll have everlasting life. So with that, guys, I'll turn it back to Matthew and give him a chance for his um, final statements here, and then we'll turn it over to you from the audience and go from there. So whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you, Josh. I, I do believe, again, as the church believes, that we were saved by God's grace. Baptism, uh, in, in baptism, water and spirit, we, are, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. But here we have Paul warning justified, sanctified, baptized believers that if you break the commandments, which is God's law, and persist in immorality and impurity without repenting, you shall not enter the kingdom. So when you say Jesus said, I, it is finished, um, it is finished for Christ, the Passover, and, um, but we still have to confess our sins. We still have to repent of our sins. According to Josh, you can, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You're saved. You're perfect. You're righteous in God's eyes. You're declared righteous. Even if you commit adultery, idolatry, and murder, it doesn't matter. Um, not saying that Josh said, go do that. He's just saying, even if you do that, you're still justified. You're still sanctified. You're still washed. Um, but Paul doesn't teach that. Jesus never taught that. Um, Jesus says, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And we have Paul. Um, saying, uh, uh, you know, to those of you who do such things, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to, to non-believers. It's like writing, that would be like writing an employee handbook for people who don't work there. The, the writing of the letters is for Christians but who are not walking the walk, but they are Christians. They've been baptized. They've been sanctified. They've been justified through the waters of baptism. Um, and he's warning them, if you do such things, idolatry, fornication, licentiousness, uh, 
um, murder. Um, and he gives a whole list. If he says, you do such things, he's writing to believers, you shall not enter the kingdom unless you repent, unless you confess your sins. That's why First John, when he does say you can know you have eternal life, if you confess your sins, if you keep the commandments, if you love one another. That's why the word John, in John's letters, the, the word if is used over seven times. If you do the will of God, if you, if you follow the master, if you do what Jesus teaches. That's why the church teaches to believe in Christ is to believe in everything he teaches and to act upon it. That's why Jesus says more blessed is the one who not just hears the word of God, but the one who does the will of God. That's why Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but only those who deal the will of the Father. And again, Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man shall give to everyone according to one's works. Matthew 25, we're going to be just, we're going to be judged by our works. Um, if we don't show mercy, Jesus says, if those do not show mercy, if we, don't, if we haven't forgive others, neither will we be forgiven. So it doesn't say, um, uh, it doesn't matter, you're already forgiven, you're already justified, you're already, you're already declared righteous. Jesus never said that. He says, if you don't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. Um, and so we're saved by God's grace. It was his blood alone that opened up the gates of heaven. But faith alone doesn't get in there. Because, uh, you know, again, James says it's by works and not by faith. alone. You know, can someone's, can someone's faith save them if they don't show mercy? Um, and James says no. And that's why Paul says uh, we're justified not by works of the law, circumcision. Uh, but he does say in Romans 2 that to those who with patience in well-doing. Um, so we have to cooperate with grace. We have to show mercy. We have to show love. And if we don't show love, if we don't show mercy, we're going to be judged by those works. Now, if we're saved by the grace of God, last minute we, we have sinned, uh, we're saved by God's grace, he atoned for the eternal punishment, but there's still temporal punishment. Again, Jesus says, um, love uh, one another, but um, Jesus says, give alms and all shall be clean within you. Protestants don't know what to do with that. Protestant pastors don't like that. We can give alms, we can be clean if we give alms, if something we can do. That's temporal punishment, atoning for the temporal punishment. Peter says, love one another. For love covers a multitude of your sins. We can we can cover our sins by our love for one another. That's the temporal punishment. That's why we're not declared righteous. We're made righteous through the purifying fires because we have to strive for that holiness without which we won't see the Lord. Um, and that's why, you know, if I have sarcasm, if I've judged somebody, um, you know, it's they're still declared righteous. But according to the Protestant, you're still in heaven. You're still sarcastic. You're still rude. Whatever doesn't matter, you're just declared righteous. But the Catholic understanding is, you are made righteous through the purifying fires where you're no longer sarcastic. You no longer have that sarcastic attitude. You no longer have that uh, that judgment attitude of others. You are made clean. You're made pure by the cleansing blood of Christ and the purifying fire, which is Jesus Christ himself. Pope Benedict said that in such a beautiful way. The cleansing fire is Christ himself who both transforms and cleanses. Uh, and all this is painful. Um, every careless word, Jesus says, will be held accountable for every careless word. Protestant pastors say, no, we won't. We won't be held accountable. Um, and Jesus says, we'll be judged as we have judged others. This is not all about rewards. It's also about punishments. Second Corinthians 5, you'll be received for the good, but also for the bad. So we're saved by God's grace. But Paul says, if you don't cooperate with grace, if you go out, persist in immorality and impurity, and he's talking about those who are Christians. And he says, if you don't live and walk the walk, if you don't cooperate with grace, you shall not enter the kingdom. Uh, if we go by scripture alone, again, uh, you know, Josh himself said that we're fallible. The scripture alone is infallible. So when Josh says to you, um, it's just a symbol, why should we believe Josh? Because he could be a fallible. You know, or why believe me? I could be fallible. 
So let's go to the scripture. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, I'm going to believe Jesus on this one as the final authority. Thank you, Josh. Awesome. Thanks for uh, participating in this debate. It's been good, man. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm not as sharp as I should be today for some reason. But um, anyways, it's been good. I think it's a worthy discussion to have. And I think there's a lot of points to address. I think one thing that it keeps coming down to is uh, the idea of scripture authority and interpretation. That's something that um, that would be a debate that uh, you know I'd be willing to have with with you or with any Catholic who would like to have a debate like that um, with me. I'd I'd be more than willing to do that or find someone who would like to do a debate like that. That's totally cool with me. The same with uh, baptism. I think baptism is a huge point in this conversation. And uh, although you've said that you don't you don't need to have the the works of any of these things to go to heaven, um, it's continue it's it seems like it's continually brought up that for those who have been baptized, um, that's the first step of an initiation into um, the grace and and communion with God. So I would I'd see those two those two ideas there. Yeah, just do exceptions. You know, do exceptions like you know, right. for example, with, you know, with, you know. Like ba- babies who are not like Jesus says, unless you were, yeah, unless yeah, you, yeah. Were back, you know. But I mean, if there's a, if there's a chance where someone like the pandemic, if if someone you know comes to have upon reading the scriptures and it says unless you believe and are baptized, but they don't you know they don't have access to someone to be able to baptize them, they can have that baptism of desire. If there's a pandemic, if there's something, but God's grace is outside of time. So even like I said with the Good Samaritan, who was justified by his works, he was a non-believer, but he was moved by the grace of God to do such things. And he cooperated with that grace. And he's going to be judged by his works. I was hungry and you gave me food. And, it, you know, of course, it, 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 the good Samaritan didn't get into heaven uh, on his own. Christ opened up the gates of heaven. But the good Samaritan was allowed to get into heaven because he showed an act of mercy. And Jesus says, if you, do, if you did that work of mercy to others, you did it to me. Come inherit the kingdom, which I purchased for you. But, yeah, um, yeah thank you for your, your your time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We have, I don't know if anybody has yeah, I don't. I don't see um, many questions coming. In. I know we've got pretty much um, there. There's some that there's some questions that have come in. I want to I want to put these up and I'll I'll do my best to answer them as well as give you a chance. But if you guys want to call in, you can call in as well, and I'll give that the priority. But um, if we don't get any calls, we'll just take a few of these and then go from there. So uh, that number is eight one six eight six six zero zero two five. John Nansen says, "Let me see. Well, it's." kind of a question it's kind of a statement he says i have one question why is this teaching so difficult for you he is god his words are uh his words dot 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 are so and and obviously i've seen a a lot of the comments coming down to uh for john things like the sacraments are um the world of jesus christ um it's because because i'm wrong the flesh is real food my body is real drink what do you say about this josh and and obviously i think what it comes down to is the how we're interpreting this passage i think that for me it starts it specifically when we're dealing with the manna from heaven for john i'm trying to answer your question the teaching isn't difficult for me if the bible made it explicitly clear that uh, what what the Catholic Church teaches is correct, I would believe it. But I believe that the Scripture teaches contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches here. So I'm in contradiction to what the Catholic Church teaches, not because the teaching is difficult, but because the Scripture doesn't support the teaching. Um, and the reason why I say that is, like I said in my opening statement, well, rather the rebuttal period, 
is that it, it starts in, in verse 30. They're asking him to show them or explain the sign for them to believe and have eternal life in verse 30. And Jesus' response is this whole per, uh, per, uh, pericope about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, if you want to call it that. And, and the explanation is related back to what happened in the Exodus and the manna that came down from heaven and them eating and having physical sustenance. And then him contrasting that with the words being uh, the, the life that you have in believing in Jesus and having life through that belief. Because uh, he says, these words are spirit and they are life. The flesh profiteth nothing. So he's, he's literally comparing the physical to the spiritual and he's saying, if you can see what happened to them in, in the wilderness, you can see what happens to us in the New Testament in receiving Christ through believing on him. That is, that is eating his flesh. That is drinking his blood. That is, these words are spirit and they are life. Uh, if you believe on me, you have life and life everlasting. So, but, but that would come into the other side of the argument, guys, when it comes to the authority side is, I mean, you're, you want me to take what the Catholic Church says and say, well, if, if, if Josh says that we're all fallible, why should we just believe Josh if he's fallible? Well, the same goes for you guys. The Catholic Church has not given you an official number on what they've officially uh, interpreted on these passages. So why is that? Why should I believe what the Catholic Church teaches if they haven't even officially uh, interpreted this passage? Instead, we're going to go on an official Catholic teaching. Well, why should I go off of what the teaching is if it hasn't been infallibly interpreted? You see what I mean? So it's it's contradictory there. And I know you you say, well, well, it's it's been officially uh, it's been officially taught, which means it's been officially interpreted. And and to me, that's just not enough. It's not enough. Um, and, and so ultimately at the end of the day, when we, when we want to talk about interpretation and authority, the interpret, interpretation always belongs to the Lord, as it says in, in the book of Daniel, the interpretation belongs to the Lord. Okay. So how does that happen? Well, the scripture is interpreted with scripture. Spiritual things are interpreted with spiritual. They're spiritually discerned. So we take all of scripture, we compare scripture with scripture and get an interpretation from scripture with the testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. All right, now why is that tedious? Why do we get all these false interpretations? Well, guys, that's a whole nother debate. But that's the reason why I don't trust what the Catholic Church is teaching ultimately is because one, I don't see the authority behind the teaching. And, and two, I see it being the tradition being in direct contrast with what the scripture is teaching. So that's my perspective. And Michael, uh, Matthew, I'd like to yeah turn it back to you, see if you want to answer that. Yes, sure, sure. Like I said, you're, you've got a really good point, Josh. You've got a very good point. Why should you believe the Catholic Church? And you're right. And, you know, the Catholic Church, like I said before, why believe Josh? Why believe me? Why believe the Catholic Church? But if we do allow the Holy Scripture to be the only and final authority, which which Jesus himself never taught. Uh, Jesus says, you know, it has been said, and if there's any issues, bring it to the church. Um, and he even says to the six, six apostles never wrote anything down, and they taught with authority. But if you go by the scriptures, it is very clear. It's very clear, and that's why his disciples walked away, because they knew he was talking literally. And that's why, you know, in the Old Testament, um, there was literal supernatural uh, bread from heaven. It was literal, and it was supernatural. And the old is surpassed by the new, Hebrew says. Jesus Christ is the literal bread. Uh, Jesus says, and he's the supernatural bread. Uh, my, the, the, the bread that I shall give is my flesh, unless you eat of the flesh, unless you drink of the blood. My flesh is true food. The flesh is of no avail. He was talking about man's flesh. 
But the fresh prophet's nothing is the the flesh prophet's nothing is that of man because they're not able to understand what the spirit. Uh, they can understand how can how can um, how can God become a man? They couldn't understand. Um, but Jesus was very clear, and that's why the Orthodox Church teaches this. Martin Luther himself. So a lot of many modern day pro uh, Protestant pastors say, "I'm going to go by Scripture," but Jesus says, "My flesh is true food," and they go, "Well, no, that's not it. Jesus didn't mean that." So they're not really going by Scripture. Either. So I think, in one sense, everybody has to have an authority outside of Holy Scripture. And I guess, in the end, it's just going to it's going to be the words of Christ: "My flesh is true food. This is my body. This is my blood." On Judgment Day, we're going to have to say to Jesus, um, "I didn't really believe your words." Um, you know, I don't think, you know, uh, you said, even though you said my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, um, I interpreted it this way. But that's not, not that's not going by scripture alone. Okay, um, and we've got a couple more on here. I'm trying to find a place. Where was it? Ah, okay. Um, so let's see. We've got a, a comment from Dominus Telcom. We'll take a couple more questions and see what else comes in and then go from there. But... Um, and and I'll, I'll give my response to this, and then I want to get yours like we did in the last question, Matthew. But he says, uh, Roman Catholic has a different Jesus Christ. His work is not fulfilled according to Catholics. This is heresy. So what I would say in, in, in respect to this question, coming back to the Eucharist, is this. Um, when, when, I, when, when I quoted Jesus as, as his last words, saying, it is finished, I, lit, I believe literally... He meant it is finished. That was the work of Christ. The atonement on the cross was finished. And uh, it accomplished what it set out to accomplish. It's extended to who it, it's sent out to be extended to. And it's applied to who it's sent out to be applied to. Now that goes into a whole other realm of soteriology. And, and no, it doesn't equate to universalism. All right, There's a, there's a huge element of faith that's involved um, in, in salvation. And, and obviously, when we're talking about the atonement in Jesus Christ and having a different Jesus Christ, I'm not going to go there. I, I, what I am going to say is, is uh, I think when we're talking about a literal interpretation, like the Catholic says, well, if you don't believe what Jesus said in John 6, then, then you're going to get to heaven and tell him, like, I just didn't believe what you said. Like, you said it, I just reject it because, I mean, I interpreted it different. And, um, and, and, and that's my answer on that. But what I would say is, I don't understand why a Catholic, and Matthew, maybe you can give an answer to this, but when it, when it's when we're talking about a literal interpretation, like you interpret John six, and and you see the 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 context of it, where he's he's literally described, he's given an answer to a sign that they were looking for, to believe on him for eternal life, and he gives them this whole passage as an example for that. Why why don't you take it literally when he says he is the door, or he's the way, or he is a vine, or he is light? I don't understand. To me, it just seems contradictory. Like we're, we're super literal here, but we're not literal there. Um, it, but and maybe you can address Dominus' um, point here, because I think that's something that I it, a Catholic should be able. Um, well, sure, you, sure. You probably get stuff like that a lot. So. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think you brought up a great point, Josh. That you're right. The work of Jesus Christ. Well, again, in Romans, Romans, Paul says he has been raised. For our justification he has been raised so the resurrection of jesus christ had to complete the, the crucifixion for our justification so right. uh, but in terms of it is finished we do know that even there's many protestant scholars themselves that say jesus says it is finished was talking in reference to the passover of the fourth cup even many protestants say this but as far as a different heresy jesus's work is complete absolutely in one sense that yes uh, but does that mean that everybody is saved 
um, it's just because Jesus, there's nothing we can do. Jesus did it all. So that means the whole world is saved, right? Jesus is the savior of the world, John 4, 14. But in that sense, the person, uh, I'm not sure who gave that question, would say, oh, no, but you can't just, you have to also have faith. So that means there's something we have to do. So apparently it's not sufficient enough for Christ to have done. We have to, we have to do something. We have to have faith. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I definitely believe that, um, that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, is by his grace, his blood, and his resurrection um, that justified us. That uh, it took on the eternal punishment, but I also believe we have to do what Christ teaches. That's why Paul warns Christians: if you if you break the commandments, if you sin deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. We have to repent of our sins when we fall. We have to confess our sins, um, and I think that's what we have to. Um, you know, I'm so uh, yeah. Uh, that's just just my response to that. So now that's good. Uh, but I thought I thought you brought up a great point too. You're right. It's not universalism that Jesus. You know, Jesus. Uh, I think the, the, you know, that, you know, the blood of Christ absolutely opened up the gates of heaven. But can anybody get in? I mean, his work is perfect. It's up there. He opened up the gates of heaven. But how do you get in? Um, you know, it has to be have faith working through love. You know, Galatians five. But I mean, it's um, but you're right. It's not universalism that I think that it's just, it's that you know, there's nothing to be done by anybody. Yeah. Um, so there are two things that I would I would um, come back on with the, with what you had mentioned there. One is how do you get in to heaven? Okay, uh, Ephesians chapter one tells you how you get in. You get in by being in Christ, and he, it says uh, for whom he it says that he's predestined those who are in Christ to be conformed to the image of Christ. All right. So a lot of people, including Catholicism, and maybe this is something where we could we could touch on this in, um, for a minute or not. That's totally fine. However you want to do it, but. Um, when it comes to predestination, we, we see uh, from a free grace soteriology that those who go to heaven are those who are in Christ. And it's, it's not based off of a work by, belief, by having faith, because we don't believe faith is a work. We believe that faith is the instrument by which God has chosen for us to use in order to either believe the gospel or to reject the gospel. That's literally trusting the work of Christ is faith. And Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith, uh, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus, uh, by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And obviously right before that, he talks about what have you, what have you been have you been, um, has your justification started by faith, and yet it's to be completed by works? God forbid. And it seems to me that the Catholic Church is teaching, it is initiated by faith um, through baptism, um, but it is completed by works. And these works would be necessary for those who have heard, and, and obviously you don't have the, the, um, the one-offs of what you had what you had given an explanation for earlier, but but to me that would that would be one in explanation. We don't believe faith is a work; it, it's it's literally the faith of Christ that saves us. But our faith has to be put in Christ, and when we are in Christ, our destination is set. The destination is set for anyone who is in Christ to go to heaven, and um, and that's kind of a start for that side of the conversation. But maybe you could respond there, and I think we'll just do one more question. That's, that's, that's fine. I think in one sense it depends on who is in Christ. You know, Jesus himself says to those who persevere to the end. So you could say, I'm in Christ right now, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, Paul says whoever sins deliberately, and he's writing to Christians. 
whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. So like if, if I know, if I get caught up in adultery, I know it's wrong, and I do it anyway, I don't repent, I don't have time to repent, Paul says the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. So, um, and uh, we do have in terms of, um, you know, Paul's warning believers. He goes, if you do such things, he gives a whole list, and, and you know, and he says, if you do such things, you shall not enter the kingdom. And he's not writing to non-believers, he's writing to believers. So who is in Christ? In one sense, Jesus sums it up very, very, very well. The world shall know that you belong to me if you love one another. You know, John in his letter says the word if over seven times. If you love one another, if you keep the commandments. Jesus himself says you must keep the commandments if you wish to enter into life. If I, if I go out and I, I commit murder, and I'm, but I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ is atoning death on the cross and his resurrection. But if I go out and I commit murder and I don't confess that sin, I don't repent of that sin, I'm no longer in Christ. So, um, I, you know, and that's why, that's why Paul and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, just, I just believe that we have to cooperate with grace. We have to persevere to the end. And that's why Jesus will judge us by our works. Um, you know, if, if, if he says, if you did not show mercy, if you did not forgive others, neither will you be forgiven. Uh, you know, and uh, he's talking to believers. So he's just warning them. So, but we can't do such things apart from, from Christ, who is goodness itself. We have to allow ourselves to be transformed and put on that new person each day. Uh, you have to take up your cross each day. You have to do the will of God in order to be in Christ. Um, you have to cooperate and do the will. That's why Matthew 7, not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, but only those who do the will of the Father. And that is to those who truly love and allow God to transform them, to forgive and to show mercy. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know, is there one more question? Um, I don't see any other questions, but I'll respond to that and then give you a chance to have a final response because I think that's a good substance, some of the things that you bring up now, but what you're piggybacking off of what was brought up earlier. And some of those, and you, you just don't get a chance to respond to everything in a debate um, like you want to, but there's two things that I would address that you just brought up. One is the idea of persevering to the end. And the other is um, the idea that you, you can... Um, when you fall from when you fall from grace, that that the sacrifice of Christ is no longer e- effective or efficient for you. Maybe that that wording is um, kind of a paraphrase of what you said, but those two points there. One, the the first point of persevering to the end. Now, the free grace soteriology would be this. It, obviously, that that means I'm a dispensationalist. I believe that when you see that phrase, persevering to the end, it's not a reference to um, your spiritual everlasting salvation of going to heaven or hell. What that's a reference to is this is where it affects our end times um, theology because you, you're probably all-mill. Is that correct? What, I'm sorry, what's the term? All-millennial. Uh, I, I don't know the specifics. I'm okay. sorry. Well, so typically um, Catholics are all-mill. So what I... I'm premillennial, so I believe that Jesus is literally going to come back and reign on earth for a thousand years. And when, okay. we, when we talk about the, the, the tribulation period, and you see references to persevering to the end, Matthew 25, you see it in Revelation 7, you see it in Revelation um, 9, that term, that term is, is always a, a reference to physical salvation, and it's always a reference to the physical salvation of, of fleeing from the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And at the return of Christ, he literally comes down at the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, Acts 1. And uh, at his return, 
he, he literally saves physically all those who are believers in Christ and are persecuted and in the tribulation fleeing for their lives. Their lives are saved. So that would be the perseverance of the saints to the end. That would be the end of the age. That would be the end of uh, everything, as you know it, until the return of Christ, which starts the millennial reign of Christ. So that would be the first response on persevering. It's not a reference to you have to keep your salvation in order to attain eternal life. Um, so that's that, that would be one problem that we have there. But the, the second is, you had brought up in, in Hebrews, um, that there's, there's no more sacrifice for sin when, when you've openly rejected, um, when, you, when you've rejected, uh, somehow your works have rejected Christ and, and all of this. But what I would point out is, is you've got what's, what's called the great warning passages in Hebrews. It would be Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. And one thing that I would, I would point out is that that passage that you're, that you're bringing up is showing that sacrifice of Christ is a once and for all sacrifice. It will not be presented again. It's been presented once. It's final. That's it. Your sins are perfectly in, under the blood of Christ and covered by the blood of Christ. And there's nothing, you, you can never lose your salvation. If you're in Christ, that's it. Your destination is 100% set. That sacrifice cannot be repeated anymore. That's why the sacri- there is no more sacrifice for sins because it's a once and for all sacrifice. But if you take that position that you take in, in interpreting that passage the way you do, you have a serious problem, and I'd like to get your take on this in Hebrews 6, where it says... Um, um, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And uh, to me, it just seems so contradictory to say that you have a process of ongoing justification of, of falling and being rejustified and falling and being rejustified. You could do that a thousand, thousand times in your life as a Catholic and never have any assurance. But at the end of the day, it's, it's in contrast to what this says. It says that you can never be brought to repentance again. And it seems that you're teaching you can over and over and over and over again. Well, so, exactly. Jesus said, you know, forgive 70 times 7. Jesus is not going to say, look, I'm not going to forgive. I'm only going to forgive you once. Don't worry about it. Forgive 70 times 7 because we have to ask. That's why John says, if you confess your sins, if you confess your sins. That's why, again, we have Paul writing his letter to those who are baptized, justified, sanctified believers. And he's hearing hearing that they're doing such things. Murder, adultery, idolatry, um, fornication. He says, if you do such things, you shall not enter the kingdom. So even though the once of sacrifice, once and perfect sacrifice of Christ is beneficial for all, if you continue to persevere in such things, you're not allowed to be inherited that. That's why Hebrews 10, 26 says, if whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. So like Jesus said, unless you repent, John's Baptist, unless you can, you know, unless you forgive your sins. If I, if I, again, if I, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior and is the Savior of the world. I I am a Christian. If tonight I come out and I commit murder uh, through through road rage, and I don't, uh, or even sadly some of these protesters who, um, with all that's happening, it's terrible what happened to that poor person. But if if someone comes out and commits murder as a vigilante, and they don't confess their sins, 
they don't repent of their sins, they're no longer in Christ because they didn't they, they didn't do the will of God and they went against the commandments and they didn't repent, they didn't confess their sins. And Paul and Jesus himself, you will not enter the kingdom um, if you don't repent, if you don't confess your sins. So his his sacrifice is perfect, but that's why the the, the Eucharist is uh, with the holy the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Every time we sin, we have to call upon God the Father to remember and to recall that once and perfect sacrifice of Christ. Um, we have to confess our sins. We have to repent. Um, we go, we we hope yeah. in the grace of God every day. But spe uh, you know, um, specifically in Hebrews six, it says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened partakers of the Holy Spirit. All of that, if you fall away to renew them and again to repentance. It, in one sense, it's a, I, 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 there's several ways to interpret that, but I think, like for example, if you have Peter, Second Peter, who talks about if you return to your old ways, if you haven't been graced through the knowledge of truth of Jesus Christ, but go back to your former ways, that way is worse than it was than you have been blessed before. So in one sense, the contrast is that it is impossible in one sense to have the knowledge of Christ, the beauty of Christ. It's impossible. It's almost like saying, um, I believe like when you're in, when a mother's with her child uh, in the store and says, we don't do such things. You know, if the child says we don't, um, you know, the child starts calling somebody bad names and bullying them. They're saying we don't do such things. Um, it's not it, it's not saying that, you know, that they the child just did that. But it's saying, look, we're, we're of Christ. One says we shouldn't do such things. That's not what we are. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't say that we will never do those things. I guess the impossible contrast with Second Peter saying, if you go back to your old ways, and Hebrews ten says, whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you. But um, I, I guess it's all like you said. It comes back to to uh, interpretation or the words of Scripture itself. Yeah, yeah, but but that's what I'm asking is, what does the Catholic Church teach on that? Because you're saying that you've got to be brought back to repentance and justification over and over and over and over again. But it's saying Every here that it's impossible for you to be for you to do that. You can't. Once you've fallen away, there's no coming back from it. Um, well, I don't necessarily believe that's true. Um, in one sense of the specifics of it, maybe it maybe it's the um, because Peter denied Christ and he came back, so it wasn't impossible by the grace yeah. of God. All things are possible. But Hebrews ten twenty six says, "Whoever sins deliberately, the sacrifice for sins no longer remains for you." So um, you know, unless you, of course you repent and be baptized. That's why I think the context is it's 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 impossible to truly know the beauty of Jesus Christ to reject Him. Meaning the ideal of it is impossible. How can you know Jesus Christ, his beauty? But yet Judas did it. Peter himself, um, was it impossible for him to come back to Christ? No, he repented. So it's impossible to like be in Christ's presence and see how beautiful he is and how kind and you know his mercy and as a savior. But but Peter Peter did repent. And he was he was saved by repenting. He confessed his sins, he repented of his sins. And um, so I think that's the difference. But, so all right, man, I think that'd be a good place to wrap up. Um, anyways, I, I really appreciate you coming. Oh, there must be a lag there. I saw your lips moving. I couldn't hear anything, though. Sorry. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Anytime, man. Hey, it's been good. It's been a good conversation. Um, you're the kind of guy that I would, I'd, I'd do a debate with um, anytime. So if you ever want to come back, you're always welcome. I think it's a good conversation to have. I think, obviously, we're drawing out some important distinctions between what we believe. And primarily for me, I, I, some of the best people that I know um, 
are Catholics. I think that Catholics are really, really good people. Uh, I've got people that I work with that are Catholics that are awesome, awesome, awesome people, and they'd do anything for you. Um, but for me, um, the the friendship side is awesome. It's great. Um, but I I do believe that it's it's an issue of uh, doctrine of salvation. Um, I do believe that um, we've we've got one side that says that salvation was started by grace and that it's finished by works, um, and and one side says that it's started and finished by by grace without works. And obviously, there's there's some some um, differences there. You're saying that we're given the grace to do the works, and I get that. Um, but it's it's just there's some nuances there that we've got to distinguish. And at the end of the day, guys, I'm not judging your salvation. I think that these are things that we look into. I can make a declaration like, listen, I believe that I'm I'm going to heaven not because of anything I do. It's because of the righteousness of Christ is given to me. Um, and, and it's not that I can go out and live however I want and go and kill 10 people and go to heaven tomorrow. I don't believe that a Christian would do that. Um, but what I am saying is there's there's a fundamental difference there, and, and I'm not the judge of your salvation. I think at the end of the day, God is is the judge of salvation, and he's got this thing figured out. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that a lot of you people who are watching this are going to think that would never be there. And you're going to get up there, and you're going to be made to sit together with him in heavenly places. <laughs> so, anyway. one last thing. Yep, you got it. One last I just say, like, for me, I believe that in order for me to inherit what Jesus Christ has purchased for us all by his atoning death and resurrection, but in order for it to inherit what he purchased for us is by to do what he commands, and that is to love one another, to forgive one another, to show mercy, and to, uh, you know, that's what I mean. It's not like, uh, but I just have to cooperate with that, and I have to forgive, and I have to love. And if I don't show mercy, if I don't love, I don't forgive, um, I won't be, uh, you know, Christ is going to recognize us by if we love one um, Yeah. But thanks, yeah. thank you so much. God That's good. Bless, Josh. Hey, your time. thanks. You too, Matthew. And uh, God bless. We'll we'll see you back here hopefully soon and, and, and follow up from there. So anyways, guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to cut to the closing scene here. And uh, let me get that volume turned down so you can actually hear what I have to say. And then we'll go from there so let's see what do we got coming up it is going to be june 7th a total inability debate between myself and dr stephen boyce and he's he's a calvinist um so when we're talking about salvation it's going to be does man have the ability to respond to god's grace of uh, the gospel being given calling you to salvation or not do you have the ability to do that prior to regeneration or not okay so June 14th, eschatology, uh, full preterist, Stacy Turbeville. Kind of some of the stuff we talked about today on premillennial. That should be an interesting topic and debate. If you're interested in that, be sure and tune in. So June 28th is going to be Kevin Thompson as well. He is uh, labeled quite often anti-Calvinist. Um, and I got to say, I'm against Calvinism as well. I think uh, it, it attributes the works of the devil to the works of God in many ways. And uh, I just... I, I don't like Calvinism at all. I love Calvinists. Um, I think that they are caught in a, a, a trap of a systematic that has appealed to their intellect as opposed to their heart. And that can be a, a tough thing to get out of. But anyways, guys, I love you. I really do. Catholics, I love you. I love you. Don't don't you don't hate what I'm saying. I love you guys. No. All right. I, it's a, we just got some fundamental differences on what we believe. 
as it's related to salvation, and uh, I'm more than happy to talk about it with you guys. So, anyways, I wish you the best. God bless, and uh, we'll we'll catch up with you soon. So.